0: The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Spock Identity. You're listening to Squawk Eye Dent, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 40 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 1st of May, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, we are celebrating our 40th show, and I am so very honored to be joined by some fantastic aviators who have had incredible journeys in their aviation careers. Today, we start the show by catching up with the Squawk Ident crew. We discuss a few of today's headlines and how they affect an aviator's career potential. Then, we dive into many stories from our past and what we have learned from our very first experiences in aviation, from GA flight training, to our early experiences as flight instructors, to dealing with the adventures of crash pad living while on reserve. Stay with us as we discuss our experiences with you. So whether you're working from home in your respective fortresses of isolation, taking a break from binge watching your favorite TV shows, or out there in public doing your essential part, Sit back, relax and enjoy the show right after a brief word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. I would like to start off by taking a moment to recognize all of the frontline professionals out there, the medical staff across the U.S. and around the world that continue to sacrifice their personal safety and well-being in order to care for our friends, our families, and our neighbors. Thank you for all that you do. From all of us here at the Squawk Ident family to yours, now let's get started. joining us on the show today is co-host here on squawk ident and currently a dfw based 737 pilot for legacy airlines the name we use here on squawk ident as an alias to our employer from his fortress of isolation in flower mound texas where he has just returned from a nice three-day trip sequence he is a former international and professional racquetball champion a member of the nine G club an AMP and avionics tech and an RC aircraft commander. He's also a pickleball master. Help me in welcoming back to the show, Rob D. Rob, how the hell are you? Hey, what's up, Tony, man. I
1: love that music. That's funky fresh. That's really cool, man. That's Thanks. it, man. Doing that good.
0: all you. So what have you been up to?
1: Uh, well, I actually just finished up a trip. Um, which was kind of nice to get back out on the road and do some flying, which I really didn't do too much. I'm sure we'll talk about it a little later on in the show. Um, but now just trying to um, get things done while I can and um, enjoy the time with the family. So that's pretty much all I've been up to.
0: Yeah, and that trip that you uh, were on, I, it's nice that you were flying, and it wasn't uh, butchered too much. I saw you only had a couple uh, rescheduling of uh, your sequence there. How was that? Yeah. Was that a last minute reassignment or were you aware of it?
1: Um, I was aware of it. So it wasn't, um, wasn't too, uh, you know, sh- shocking of a trip. I knew what I was getting into and, um, uh, it was really easy. I mean, I, I think I did uh, three hours of flying in three days. So, um, uh, not a whole lot of productivity going on there, but, um, Shirley was nice to just, you know, kind of ease into a three day and <laughs> enjoy some long overnights in a hotel and catch up on some Netflix and stuff. So um, it's not too bad. It got done. I was in, in the gate by 8.15 this morning and walking in the door by 8.45. So uh, life is good.
0: Yeah, and I see a nice clean shaven face there. That's uh that's a shame. But I'll be joining yeah. you here uh I'll be joining you here in probably a few hours after the show. Yeah. I've got a trip coming you up. You wait so. till you have to shave that thing off. It's going to hurt. Yeah, you know, I I am uh you know, whenever I have vacation or I have like a week or two off work, which is not uncommon every few months, I do just enjoy not having to shave every morning. So I have some, you know, pre-shave uh lotions and you know aftershave and conditioner because i yeah i you know i've i've done this before but
1: yeah me
2: too yeah
0: well also joining us on the show today is another exceptional aviator and co-host here on squawk ident he joins us from his palace of education and shenanigans from somewhere in San Diego, California. He is a professional CFI, double MEI flight instructor, a former Embraer 145 airline pilot, a King Air instructor, and a corporate pilot as well. Please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Captain, how are you?
2: I'm doing all right, Tony, how are you? It's good to be back.
0: Yeah, it's good to have you. Uh, so. It's been a while, like almost a week and a half since we last spoke. How have you been?
2: It's pretty much been a lot of same old same old. Uh, I, I kind of liked your 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 palace of education comment there. There is a lot of that going on. Um, it's not easy for for better or for worse. I had a little bit of a, a blow up a few days ago with with my son actually, which is a little surprising. Oh wow. Apparently trying to teach your soon to be third grader his times tables was just a little bit too much for him. Um so yeah, a lot of that. Um I actually I skirted the law a little bit for the first time and I actually went out and saw one of my friends <clears throat> um actually a couple of times when we played a, a couple board games. I know, I know people are making faces at me, but uh, you know, we we wore the appropriate masks and In in clubs and not not really, but we we all seem to be surviving so far. Yeah, you
0: you maintained your distance, and no one around you was going crazy. Yeah, we
2: we maintained our uh, our personal bubble space. But that I mean that was that was nice to be able to do. I haven't done that, and it's been going on what two months now.
0: Well, it's important just to get out and do
2: something different, even if it was just for a couple hours. So
0: yeah, yeah, and and it really is. It's important to get out, and uh, but no flying uh, in the time frame you're.
2: I have not done any flying. I did I did get a, a another update and it does look like we have a couple things that are coming up over the next 2 months. So, you know, I'm I'm glad that uh that Rob D got his his 3 hours of flying and I'll probably get about 3 hours in the next 2 months on myself. So, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about my productivity as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great that you're up, you know, at least having that opportunity to to get up there pretty soon.
2: Yeah. you know, It looks and, like in the next couple of weeks, we should be getting back to, to at least something and getting back into the airplane. So that'll be nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I'm very excited. This is the 40th show. And and I've asked a previous guest to come back on the show. Uh, I absolutely enjoy spending uh, time talking to her. And I am sure that you will, too. I'm so very excited that also joining us today, returning to the show for the second time, you might remember the story of her journey from episode 32, Stronger Together, an Aviation Couple's Story. She is an avid runner, a former pilot for Trans States Airlines, former Sandpiper Regional pilot as well, a LOSA analyst, a pilot mentor, Civil Air Patrol pilot, and currently a Don't Rush Challenge star and 737 pilot for an airline we here call On Squawk Ident Domestic Air. All the way from her family farm in Valparaiso, Indiana, please help us with welcoming back to the show, Jerry D. Jerry, how are you?
3: Hey, Tony. I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you. So, here it is. How was the flying that you've done so far?
3: So I have not flown in about three and a half weeks. I'm on reserve and I did get called out for two days at the beginning of April. And since then, my last, uh, last two blocks of reserve, I did not get called. Wow. So I get to sit at home, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, have bags packed at the front door and I'm ready to go if they do call me. But so far I'm home.
0: Yeah. And over at domestic care, what is the, your reserve call out? Or do they just have like a, a a window, a short call or long call or how is it?
3: It's two hours and that's all we have. We don't have a long call or.
0: Oh, so stuff. if you're on reserve, it's always going to be a two hour call out.
3: It's always going to be two hours. Yep.
0: Okay. And is that a kind of a, a tight call out for you from your location to your base? I'm,
3: I'm an hour drive. Okay. Um, and so if they call me and it, and it needs to be the two hours, I just get dressed. Everything's ready. I get dressed and, and go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great.
3: So, so it works out.
0: And last time we spoke, you were uh, we had you on the show with your husband, Ty. And today, uh, you know, it was questionable whether he was going to be able to make it for the show. But you have him working on a project in the backyard, don't you? What's he doing? And
3: I've helped a lot on that project. So I'm getting to play hooky from <laughs> that project right now, which... Is okay with me.
0: (laughs) That's great. That's great. Yeah, we
3: ripped out over this, you know, with both of us not flying much. A lot of his stuff has been canceled as well. So we've been home. I think he's he might have flown once in this last three weeks. One of his trips, I think, did go. Mm -hmm. But we ripped out an entire deck, and we're replacing it. And then we're replacing part of the area with a patio. So it's a huge, giant project back there, and I'm happy to be in here right now.
0: Yeah. So uh, you told me that they delivered the wood yesterday. So it's like, okay, that's it. He get to work. And it was raining (laughs)
3: the last two days. So he's got his first sunny day. He needs to to be working on it.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, welcome to the show. I'm very excited. Um, As we mentioned, this is the 40th episode of Squawk Ident. This little pet project that started out here, you know, late last year, and has really kind of grown into really a second passion for myself. And, and I've been very fortunate that I've had a lot of friends that have been supportive. And even the three of you that, uh, you know, from the beginning have been supporting the show, and I'm just love to have all of you on. So let me just start off by saying a big thank you to you, to all of you and to all of the listeners out there for taking the time to listen and to hopefully be entertained enough to keep on listening and subscribing to the show and, and sharing the show with friends and, and leaving reviews and things like that, because all of that just helps bring Squawk Ident out there to the world. So again, a big thank you. And just a, real, a little recap, because this is episode 40 uh, we just wanted to talk a little bit about what we do here on Squawk Ident. Uh, we explore the journey of our fellow aviators. And, you know, how, why, why do we do that? Well, there's plenty of aviation podcasts out there. They all talk about, you know, the news, or they have interviews with um, some pretty important people, or they talk about books, or, or air traffic control, or GA community, you, you name it. There's a podcast on everything. It's one of the fastest growing mediums out there. And what we do here is talk about the journey. And that's simply because as someone who came into this career as a second career for me, um, you know, I came in a little bit later, not too late, but I was uh, in my late twenties when I first set foot in a small airplane. And I was always curious on, you know, I had no idea about aviation. You know, I, I, I just curious, how do you become a pilot? How do you do this? And through interviews and reaching out to friends and family, I learned that, hey, well, I could easily get my private pilot's license just by doing a study course and renting a Cessna out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and kind of getting up there and, and working on my rating. and And it was for a long time where I was meeting people and they were explaining the different career paths and the the availability of jobs in this industry, where I really thought, wow, this is something I could do. This, is, this sounds really great. Well, here I was, you know, on my journey, on my path, and I started to realize that the first thing we talk about when we sit foot in a cockpit is, if this is the first time you've flown with the next person that's next to you, uh, you, you ask them, how'd you get in aviation? You know, what, how'd you get here? What'd you do before this? And those stories have always been so very interesting to me, because although a lot of them are similar in the Pathways, they're all very much unique. And I really thought that that journey was interesting enough to talk about it. But that's not all we do here on Squawk Ident. The show has developed into many different styles. We've talked about the shows where you, you, if you've listened to Squawk Ident for a while, there are shows where it's... Basically, an interview show where I ask another aviator or a fellow aviator about their journey. Um, We've had those shows together, each of us independently, um, where we talk about our unique journeys in aviation. And I've had the honor of being the host of those shows. We also have discussion shows where I'll get together with one or more either co hosts or guests to come on the show. And we talk about all kinds of things that affect the journey or an aviator's journey in this industry and right now there are many many factors that affect the industry how to become a pilot you know the journey the pathways and the stepping stones and we also have topic shows those were all really early on in my podcasting you know adventure here where i would just nail down like four or five topics and try to talk about them and keep it interesting enough that people would listen. And that's something that we've kind of gotten away from a little bit, but I want to start bringing that back in future shows. So uh, stay tuned, because we're going to be talking a little bit more about those kind of topics, things that maybe a, a GA pilot or someone interested in becoming a pilot um, has questions about. So stay tuned. Um, we have lots of segments out there. and. Uh, things like titles of segments like There We Were and Commuting Nightmares and Long-Ass Captain PAs are some of my favorites. So this is what Squawk It In is all about. It's what it's kind of grown into. And this is what we're going to try to do with future shows is bring them all in together. And here we are, episode 40. I thought I'd make it a little special and kind of incorporate all of those different styles of shows that we've done in the past into this one. And you guys have been really supportive and been listening. You know, have you guys had a favorite segment or a favorite show that you've listened to that you thought was pretty good? Jerry, what do you think?
3: I like the There we were segments. Cause I like, I like listening to your, you know, what kind of situations you've gotten yourself into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, li- I like hearing other people's stories of when they're in the cockpit or you know, and hearing what happens to other people.
0: Yeah, and, and I'm always so, so very surprised. You know, I, I love telling stories. You know, and in the cockpit, especially when you're together. You know, years ago, you know, nearly a decade ago, when when we were flying the line out there and the, at the the regional, and you're flying with these captains that have been around for a long time, and. And, you know, they've survived multiple mergers and acquisitions and furloughs and all these things. And they start talking and telling these stories. I was always so amazed. And, and it seems like in the past 10 years, you know, you get in the cockpit and you're flying with people and you start to tell about, oh, that's one time and this emergency I had or this and that. And I'm always so amazed that a lot of them go, yeah, no, I've never really had a major emergency. And they talk about like something minor. I'm like, really? You've been flying all this time and you really don't? i mean i could name off five things that were pretty major in my first five years alone but i was always amazed by that so yeah i too love hearing you know the the stories from the flight line and 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 there we were and and things like that yeah so
2: i can tell you that it makes me feel uh fortunate i mean obviously i have my one big story but i'm one of those people that sits here and is like you have all these stories about this happens and that happens and i don't have i have one big one um you know, which we talked about on the show that one time, but other than that, and I, I, very minor stuff. Yeah. Like you guys have way more stuff happen. I, I maybe I'm fortunate. I don't know, but I'm definitely one of those people myself actually.
0: Well, you're in a, your major event, you know, and if you have to go back to listen to that show, um, that, that's a great one. Uh, but yeah, that being hit by, it was six to eight pound bird right in, the the windscreen. Oh, it I think shattered. Yeah, Come I on.
2: A, I got a lot of stuff out of the way and one fell swoop there. Yeah. But still, it's just a, you know, from a from a number standpoint, that's really I've really only had two somewhat noteworthy events, of which that one definitely takes the cake. But yes, for sure. And and you handle I I hope I'm done, by the way. I, I will say that too. <laughs>
0: You've made your quota. Yeah. I
2: I sure hope so
0: yeah, for sure. The odds,
2: I guess that they say that the odds say that that's not going to happen to me again. And I, my response to them, well, well, I know it happened. It, it, it can happen. So.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, when you're flying, what did you say on the, on last time we spoke a uh, couple hundred hours a year? Statistically, yeah, at this point, the number, yeah. The I'm numbers, only flying,
2: a, you know, a third, yeah. you know, maybe twenty five twenty five 25% of what, Of what you guys do. Yeah. Once you're flying
0: like 90, 95 hours of flight time a month, your, your opportunity for incidences to happen and, you know, reactions to non-normal procedures goes up exponentially. So, yeah. And Rob, what about you? Do you have a favorite show or segment? Well, I honestly, I just got done listening to, um,
1: 39 Owen Cotto. And I, and that guy's got, got a pretty amazing history. And, um, uh, his story was, was really impressive. I really liked that show yeah. a lot. And there's been a cup number of shows very similar to that one. And so I like to hear, um, uh, a lot about, you know, the history and, and how people got into aviation and got to where they were. I, I really like that, that storyline. Um, and, but I do like to hear like, uh, Ah, uh, Jerry and Rogers said, you know, those stories about, um, you know, there I was, and this is what happened, and this is what I did. Uh, I, I think when I first started um, getting the uh, aviation bug, um, a lot of the stories I heard were um, coming from military fighter pilots, mm-hmm. and they loved it to tell those kind of stories, and I think that kind of captivated me, you know, into the uh, the flying aspect of aviation, and. um so you know now that i think i mean i don't have anything as near as interesting as those guys have but you know that's what i I love listening to those things i also think you learn from it you know you 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 kind of compartmentalize you know some of these things that you hear and you say okay if i'm ever in this situation this is what this guy did and you know maybe that'd be a good good thing to do for me you know so yeah yeah that's i like that stuff
0: i've always felt that way and and was kind of disappointed with the fact that when you get to a private company or a, you know, a publicly traded company or what have you uh, on the civilian side of things, the information for pilots about accidents and incidences are not as transparent as they are in the military service. At least that's what I understand. Um, Those morning briefings where they talk about everything, if you're an F-16 pilot and you're on that squadron, every morning you'd have a morning briefing, and you would talk about all the things that have happened, uh, what resulted from it, and and you learn, because those are learning tools. And the companies that I've at least flown for, or I've known people to have flown for, the way it's always been described to me is those companies have uh, some level of liability and privacy that they're trying to protect. And so that information about an incident or accident, they're not loose in terms of giving that information up easily. Luckily, at Legacy Airlines, they do have a weekly email that goes out. Uh, Not all pilots subscribe to it because it's something where you'd have to log into the company portal and put that down as an option that you want to receive those particular emails. Um, But they do have a weekly email that does come out, and they give you all the very generic incidences that happen on what aircraft, where it happened, and they don't tell you why. They don't tell you, you know, what the outcome was. Um, a lot of times, anything major, it it doesn't get released at all because it's under investigation. And if it's something, if it's an incident or accident that's under investigation by the FAA or NTSB, then it's you're really not going to hear about it because those things last for years. Um, so that's. The nice thing about hearing stories from your fellow aviators is you can absolutely pull from it and learn from it, and that's why I've always been so curious about it. Just, you know, oh, what, what happened? Um, and you know, we've only scratched the surface here, uh, with the show on, on telling stories that I've heard, and I'm, and I'm sure you guys have all heard some great stories as well throughout the years. So, but in today's show. Uh, I really wanted to inform all of those future aviators out there or all those aviators that are currently not flying and don't feel like picking up a you know, a news a media or newspaper, I should say. I'm aging myself. Newspaper. And, uh, and we, briefly, we're going to discuss just a few of the headlines, really to just get the word out to entertain you. And maybe we're going to tell a few good stories along the way. So let's start off with a few headlines. So, the first one that I would like to talk to you guys about, I don't know if you have seen item A here in the folder. Hoping to avoid virus warhead, pilots' unions want masks mandated on airplanes. Uh, and I'm referencing the NBC DFW News 5 uh, website here. And in it, they're talking about how the union leaders want the FAA to order passengers on all airlines to wear masks. And one of the spokespersons from one of the unions of the uh, Allied Pilots Association, uh, Dennis Taylor indicated that uh, we are unique in that we are in a tight space. We travel at near the speed of sound. Wow. Really? And we want to make sure that we're not a missile with a virus warhead. Mm. That's a little dramatic, but okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, Erin Strine knows how packed the airplane can get a frightened sight amid a deadly pandemic when she recently boarded an American Airlines flight from New York to North Carolina. She was quoted as saying, so I was one of the last people on the airplane and to walk on and realize how full it was, was shocking. Shrine said. And especially coming from New York City, she said, which has been the epicenter of the pandemic in this country. To see people not wearing masks, it was shocking. And okay, we've we've all kind of seen these headlines, right? Past couple days where, you know, these full flights, you know, not just American, but a lot of the airlines have had one or two of these flights go out recently where they're full. And so the the practice of social distancing has not been something. That was easily done and Delta and United I saw and, and I believe even a Southwest flight had a pretty full flight recently and it made headlines. So what's the deal? Uh, don't those passengers know that you should only be traveling if you're essential? So why are we having full flights is the first question. The other is, would the FAA really be in charge of mandating that passengers wear face masks? I don't know what the answer to that is. But further in the article, they do mention that while it does support the CDC's recommendation, that's the FAA, uh, that people wear face coverings in public, the FAA does not require plane passengers and cabin crews to do the same. And it's because that is the CDC's Realm The FAA doesn't have jurisdiction to mandate that people wear face coverings. In a statement to NBC5 Investigates, an FAA spokesperson said that the FAA has statutory authority and responsibility to promote the safe operation of civil aircraft. The FAA is not a public health agency. Nevertheless, the agency did say that it was working with health authorities to issue the best guidance for flight crews. At the time of this article, there were no mandates, uh, at least with American Airlines. However, that has changed. And Rob, did you see the, the latest company email there in reference to mandating that flight attendants must wear face coverings as of today, May 1st? And passengers are now going to be required to wear face coverings starting i believe on the 7th.
1: Good news everyone.
0: I did. I saw that and the uh flight attendants this
1: morning were uh, wearing their face masks on uh, the first flight out of Tulsa. Um yeah, I you know on as you as you know you, you hardly see the passengers get on and get off the airplane so I didn't really notice too much. I mean, I didn't take notice of the, of the passengers, if they were wearing anything. Um, I know some people were, um, at least on some of my deadheads the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but yeah, there, there's, seems to be half and half with people wearing them and people not wearing them. And, and then the people that do have them may not be even wearing them when they have them. You know what I mean? Right. So you know, or they wearing be, them
0: incorrectly where their nose is completely exactly. out of, because it's know. hard to breathe. Yeah, and I I know Roger loves hearing this kind of stuff. They have debates at their family dinners, since he's got the medical profession in the family bloodlines there. So, you know, Um, it it just
1: it's interesting though with everything with uh, these new mandates and stuff. Though it's kind of I'm kind of curious to know, you know, uh, if the you know the company is uh, or companies are are requiring passengers and and uh, of course a cabin crew to to wear these face masks. Um, who's, who enforces that? You know what I mean? It's, uh, if you get on as a passenger with a face mask, but then you just say, you know what, I'm not going to wear it on my face because I don't want to, I'm
0: hot. Yeah. <laughs> or, or how am I going to you know drink I mean? my soda? if So, if I have a so face what do you do? On, right? you,
1: you give them a Peter form or something and say, Hey, you're not in compliant with crew stuff. And well, know, and I
2: think that that's kind of why that question on why they're trying to have the FAA mandated because you're, yeah. It, our country is not really set up and, and not that this is a bad thing either, but our country's not set up for something like this. I mean you've got, okay, who's making the rules and then who's gonna enforce the rules? And then there's also the political liability behind oh, all, yeah. behind all of that. Okay, well if I'm gonna make you wear a mask, well now you're infringing on my civil rights, which we've all said, seen a lot of people, you know, that the the far right libertarian, which don't get me wrong, there's some I think some decent ideas there, but, but they're really, but in this case, they're really like, you're infringing on my personal rights when we're trying to, you know, keep people safe, but then who's going to enforce it. You can't make me or I can't get on the airplane unless I put the mask on. But then once we take off, what are we going to do? We're going to turn around and and lose more money because I decided to wear my mask the wrong way. I mean, the whole thing, I think that the airlines are kind of, they realize that they don't really have any, they don't have any authority over anything like this, but if they have the backing of the federal, the federal something, whether that's the CDC or the FAA, then at least they kind of have a, you know, well, I can't take more than two carry on bags on the airplane, but why yeah. not? Because the FAA says so and that they, they yeah. can stand firm on that. And I think I also, that's where some of this stuff kind of goes a little.
1: crazy. I also, I also think it's kind of uh, posturing and, you know, like, uh, if that's the right term to put it as, as far as like, Hey, you know, we're being safe. Come fly with us. You know, try to entice people that have been, you know, uh, kind of hesitant to get in the air again, to say, hey, you know, we're we're doing everything we can. Flying is safe. People are doing it. Come on on board. But like you said, Roger, and like like I kind of mentioned earlier, it's it's very rare that the FAA even enforces anything, any kind of passenger violation. I mean, you know, we had that United Airlines incident a couple of years ago with that doctor, or whatever. Refusing got beat up and dragged, and nothing happened from that. I mean, obviously we don't know all the really specific details about it Yeah, but I mean, you know, there's so many things that happen and You know, there there's rules and regulations and fines, but it's very 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 rare that um, Those are actually, you know enforced so it's especially kinda, now I mean yeah. who wants
2: to find somebody and during the midst of, of exactly. a crisis the entire world over yeah, it you right. know was going through. How many yeah, memes have crazy. you
0: seen lately on the socials indicating, you know, we're letting criminals out of the prison system because we don't want them to catch COVID nineteen. Because so we're we're trying to practice social distancing from people that are, you know, not serving the full term of their crimes, and yet we're gonna find people and put people in jail for not, you know, social distancing or wearing a mask or being out when it's. I mean. It's kind of ridiculous, but I think it is posturing. I think it is trying to put yourself in the light that, Hey, we're doing everything we can. And Jerry, what about you at uh, domestic air? Are they doing any kind of requirements to safety, personal protective equipment?
3: There's no requirements as far as I know. And I haven't refreshed, you know, I haven't, uh, I've been off the last couple of days. Yeah. I haven't looked at the newest stuff. I go back on reserve tomorrow, so that's my homework tonight. But um, but yeah, they hadn't been requiring it.
0: Are the are the companies or the chief pilots' offices uh, handing out uh, face masks to the employees and the pilots and whatnot uh, prior we to? We do. Trip?
3: Yeah, they're handing out face masks. They've got thermometers um, in the crew rooms if you want to take your temperature before you go to work. It's that's not required, but you can. Mm-hmm i don't know if they're doing the same thing at legacy it's uh the, as they, of right
0: they, now it's the flight attendance through yeah. the tsa so the tsa yeah. will be doing spot monitoring um and it's a requirement that they have yeah. less than 101 degrees if they have more than 100 or is it 100 or 105 100.5 something like that if it's more than 100
1: yeah. they then, get a
0: couple checks takes
1: yeah. do, you know do overs and get five minutes sit time cool down time because if they were you know, huffing and puffing it from the parking lot. to make it on time. Their temperature might be elevated and stuff like yeah. that. But yeah. And I, and I think it's also under the supervision of a manager or a, or a supervisor also at, that's supposed to be there at the TSA um, witnessing this whole thing too, so that there's no, you know, he said, she
0: said kind of thing. <laughs> right. But also yeah. the pilots aren't required to have their temperature checked Correct. through the yeah, TSA, which to me is yeah. kind of, why would you check? the cabin crew and not the flight deck crew yeah. for me. I yeah. think we're all kind of in the same boat, pardon the expression. You know, we're, we're all up there together. We're all in the same hotel van or crammed into a hotel van. Maybe sometimes six or eight of us mm-hmm. talk about no social distancing whatsoever. That's okay. But you know, I think what's good for one should be good for all. If you're going to require flight attendants to take their temperature check before going through TSA, then you probably should take mine too. And I'm more no. than willing to, to do that. And if I have 101, so I get to stay there for the day. Who cares, right? So
3: Yeah, I could see yeah. that coming, you know, it coming to that. And yeah. I think, I mean, all the flight attendants I've seen, at least now it's been three weeks ago, but they were all wearing masks. But I can't imagine wearing one up front, though.
0: That's it, going to be hard. And I was going to ask Rob, uh, were you wearing a mask on the flight deck this week? No, I wasn't.
1: I didn't wear one on the flight deck. I haven't been. Only when I ride in the back I do, but um sure. up on the flight deck I haven't been. Just Oh man, it's kind of a annoyance with the microphone and the the mask there. It's just um and I haven't uh flown with anybody that has worn one. I I flew with one guy that wore a mask to the flight deck mm-hmm. and then he took it off when right. he got there and then when he got up to, you know, when we were done with the flight, he put it back on and
0: that's what well, I've been yeah, doing the so, last time yeah. I flew was may or know April seventh so nice. thus thus the uh thus the facial hair uh that you know hey if I don't have to shave on my days off I don't usually shave normally it's like a couple days of stubble and but so I'm very proud of this which is I'm gonna have to say goodbye it's gonna be a tearful event saying goodbye to my beard <laughs> but um, you know I've had a lot of fun with it and uh but oh man I don't know how people do it i i don't I don't like it. It's just too itchy all the time, even though I condition and, you know, comb it out. But I look like an old man, too. But yeah, but, you know, the, the white hairs give it away. Is it? Yeah, I don't know where those yeah. I must have been eating a powder donut. I don't know where that came from. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, the uh, the thing I was doing the same thing. Um, I would wear the mask in the airport. I was I think the last overnight I did was Las Vegas, you know, walking through the Air, Las Vegas airport, wore the mask. Um, got on the airplane, I did the walk around, came back from the walk around, took the mask off, put it in my back pocket, which it's funny, you know, you get your keys, your wallet and your cell phone. Those are the three must have before you leave, move from, you know, leave your house, leave your room, whatever. I always have to have those three things with me. And now I've got a fourth in my back pocket and the other pocket. Now I've got a face mask because if I, like last night, we I took the girls out. We went to Baskin Robbins to get some ice cream. And I couldn't go in the building unless I had a face mask on. Because in California, you cannot go into t- a, f- a grocery store or whatever's open for essential services. You can't go get to the ice cream parlor and get ice cream without a face mask on. And, of course, ordering was fun. And the lady, the, you know, she's like, how can I help you? How can I take order? And, of course, my response was, yeah, I like a, a pistachio all the try not please with a what." Uh, what, two scoops or one scoop? What, two scoops on a, on a waffle cone. What? On a waffle cone. Okay. So you want it on a sugar cone? No, a waffle cone. So then you take the mask off and you go, I said a waffle cone. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got kind of a similar funny story about
1: that this, this week when we were, when I was deadheading, uh, the number one, uh, which is the, you know, one of the four, uh, flight attendants in our, in our company, um, working first class, uh, that, that young fellow was Asian with a seriously thick Asian accent Uh and then he had his mask on and um, you know, a lot of communicating when, when you have somebody with, with a really thick accent, sometimes you have to like read their facial expressions and lips to kind of understand what they're really trying to say, even though they're saying it in English, but it's so, you know, you need subtitles there Uh when you're talking. So this person, uh, this flight attendant had their face mask on and a passenger walked on and didn't really know where they were sitting kind of elderly and so she asked him hey where am i sitting again and he's like she's like bunch what much of, of chickens out here <laughs> again i can't hear you i I, mean, I can't understand you oh man it was it was a fun interaction
0: for a little while there <laughs> and i'm just like oh, i gotta geez. start recording this stuff you know just, you yeah. put it on your oh. put it on your phone record it and we'll look back at the christmas party and laugh
1: this <laughs> sounded like you know the peanut
0: the Peanuts, uh, you know, the teacher, yeah. teacher, school That's what teacher. Roger sounds like when he's trying to teach his kids. It's like, okay, now times tables. <laughs> That's what they hear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think? Do you think it's a good idea that the certain airlines are now requiring the face mask? Or do you think it's kind of a, just posturing and trying to appease the public?
2: I personally think that it's a good idea but it doesn't have anything to do with the airline with the airline aspect I think one of the things that's would be we would be better served to do as a an entire population is to wear a mask out in public again because we because it seems with this with this disease that so many can be asymptomatic you know and if that keeps you I mean I mean you know maybe you know, who knows what the mask is going to catch when, from, from your nose and mouth, but you know, when you're going to cut down probably 90% of that, you could probably, I would guess, um, probably cut down on a lot of, um, a lot of transmissions. And so it's, like I say, I don't think it has anything to do with the airlines. Um, it's just something as a general population, I think that we would be better served to do. And I think that might come out as, as a strong recommendation, as we start moving into, um, society trying to open back up again, just because that's a fairly simple, even if it is, you know, somewhat uncomfortable. Um, but if it really can cut down on transmission, I think that, you know, everybody wants to get back to normal and that might be a good, a good strong first step.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, uh, someone had posted something the other day and, and, you know, I, and my daughter saw it and sent it to me and she thought it was hilarious and it said, okay, let's, Let's get rid of all this confusion with the mask. Okay, here's an analogy that works. Two naked men are walking down the street, and if one of them pees on themselves, the person passing by probably going to get pee on them, and that's pretty gross, right? You have
3: got to be kidding. So
0: let's say the man that's walking down and pees is still naked, but the person passing by, which let's just say it's you, is wearing pants on, and the man pees. Odds are you might get a little bit of... Pee on your pants, and it's gross, but it's probably not going to get on your skin.
2: You disgust me.
0: And if both men are wearing pants, and the person that walks down the street pees his pants, and you're wearing pants and they're wearing pants, you're not going to get any pee on your pants. And most likely, the pee isn't going to leave the man's pants. He's just going to be all wet. And as kind of gross and childish and disgusting as that analogy is, it really does kind of sit well with how wearing the mask can absolutely be effective from getting a virus. It's not really you getting it, because if the guy that has the virus breeds coughs, and you walk by or walk through that breath, then you might get it on your hand, your skin, your face, your nose, your ears, your mouth, whatever, because your eyes aren't covered, right? So... But if you're wearing the mask and you have it and you cough or sneeze or breathe, odds are it's going to be trapped in your pants. I mean, your mask. So it was kind of a it was kind of a cool little, you know, meant to be funny uh, analogy, but it really does suit the purpose. I hope that wasn't uh, (laughs) too. Uh, That was good one. I under I understood it. You talked at my level.
3: Yeah, I saw that too. (laughs) I I I learned something.
0: So, you know, all this, uh, you know, all these mask wearing, not wearing, you know, who's requiring it. It's just every day it changes. The, the latest uh, this morning, I got up and kind of started taking a look at these things. And from CNBC, in an article that they wrote uh, entitled, Most US Airlines Will Require Passengers to Wear Face Masks as They Guard Against Coronavirus. This article was written yesterday, April 30th. And in there, they give you a little bit about who's doing what um major u.s airlines on thursday said that they will require travelers to wear face masks on board the aircraft as carriers take steps to try to protect the health of passengers and crew delta's policy requires travelers to wear a mask or other face covering in a check-in area premium lounges uh, boarding gate areas and on board while on the entire flight except during meals. So you have to wear it on the flight. But if I hand you a sandwich, it's okay that you take your mask off, eat the sandwich, right? And and, and, yeah, can you pass better? Oh yeah, here you go. You know, that's fine. Then just put the mask off when you're done. That's okay. I get it. But (laughs) yeah, also they're urging passengers to wear them while they're in security lines and in the restroom. United will also start requiring masks for passengers as of today, May 1st. America's policy goes into effect May 11th. So there's the answer to that one. Frontier Airlines issued a similar requirement that goes into effect May 8th. And JetBlue Airways earlier this week became the first U.S. airline to mandate masks for travelers. And uh, in a quote by Frontier CEO Barry Biffle, We want our passengers to feel comfortable when flying with us by protecting themselves and their fellow travelers as we all navigate the COVID-19 pandemic. So a lot of airlines are now all coming on board. Um, Some airlines, like American, also plans to distribute sanitizing wipes for travelers starting next month. So when you board, they're probably going to hand you a sanitizing wipe, and if you don't have a mask, they'll probably issue you a mask because it's required. You can't be on without the mask. And they're going to expect you to wipe everything down and seat belts. And question is, are we still going to have cabin cleaning if all the passengers are going to do it for
2: us? Absolutely. I think yeah. it goes back to what Rob was talking about before about the optics of everything. There's no way that anyone's going to get away without doing a, a nose-to-tail cleaning as frequently as, as everybody's going to demand it. Just for if nothing else because for optics.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it's also gonna be a um kind of a uh advertising uh competition on who can talk about how clean their airplanes are coming up next. I think that's the next uh phase of getting people to come back and get, you know, how 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 quickly can you attract people? And a lot of it's gonna be our planes are clean, we're smoking, we're sanitizing, we're yeah, we're giving
0: you wipes. We're giving you masks. We're giving you this. Yeah, so yeah, and, and really, yeah. that's really what it comes down to is, hey, look what we are doing, you know. And so you're safe yeah. when you fly with us. You're safe. I'm actually curious
1: to like uh, how how JetBlue is doing because I know they're you know their corporate headquarters and I think their biggest base is New York. You know what I mean, and yeah. uh, that's probably. I mean, I I think it's along the lines of all the other lines asking people to wear masks and everything, but, you know, just New York being the the hot spot of this whole thing right now, um, I'm wondering, I mean, you don't hear too much about them in the news, but, um, you know, that they've got to be having some, you know, pretty big, you know, like everybody, but, you know, problems with this whole thing, because a lot of their stuff is East Coast based out of New York, you know?
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and if any JetBlue pilots are listening and would like to send me uh, some kind of feedback or information, please do so. Uh, you can DM on most of the socials or just go to the website, aviatortony.com, and uh, send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Well, let's move on to number five in the news folder. And I'm really shocking to hear this yesterday, that uh, some more breaking news that American suspends all regional operations out of Miami International Airport. This is huge. I mean, as of May 7th, they're going to temporarily, they say, suspend all air travel. You can find more information about this in an article from thejetset.tv in an article published a few days ago by Bobby Laurie. American Airlines plans to suspend all regional air. Operations out of Miami effective May 7th for at least a month. This will apply to all regional carriers. The news of the suspension was first reported to Envoy Air employees on Wednesday. Envoy Air is a wholly owned subsidiary of American Airlines Group, operating more than 185 aircraft on 1,000 daily flights. Around 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Republic Airways informed their crews of the regional suspension as well. This is.
1: Is- I heard Republic also furloughed 58 of their uh, pilots uh, yesterday
0: or today. Yeah.
3: No, I hadn't heard that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, this is only a temporary thing. But according I to a lot is. of the the analysts that are talking about, you know, what are the airlines going to look like after this whole pandemic is not over? That's not the right word. But once we're out of the the isolation. Um, phase of this pandemic. Once we move on to the next phase, which is going to be the new normal, the new way of doing things, at least until we can either come up with some kind of vaccine or everybody gets antibodies and, and it's not an issue anymore. We don't see any new cases. But until we, we reach the other side of that curve that everybody's talking about, it, this is really going to be a leaner, smaller industry. So, you know, even if they bring the flying back. How much are they going to bring back? And, and even then, how much is it going to be regional flying versus mainline flying? Because if you're a carrier and you have, let's say, a dozen regional contracts out there with maybe one or two wholly owns, the contracts are going to be the first to go. And then the wholly owns might you know, get shrunk down, more lean. Um, the only good news out of all this is the fact that the retirements are still going to happen. Those projected retirements over the next five to ten years are still really big. Um, the hiring, yeah, or maybe even
1: sooner, with the way they're doing the voluntary permanent leaves, too.
0: Yeah. And the, Jerry, did they do any voluntary leave of absences or uh, early retirements over at Domestic Air in this they whole thing? They have done
3: um, voluntary time off. Um, they're, they're still working on um, an early retirement package. I believe there's nothing official about that yet, but I think it's probably coming. Mm. Um, But yes, we've had people take um, time off.
0: Okay. So the time off is, is helping obviously. Um, Because as of right uh, now, hashtag save Dean is still very much in effect and, you know, hopefully will be a a positive outlook. So is Dean the most junior
1: domestic air pilot?
3: Dean is. Yes, okay. and we all
1: want Dean to stay on. I think Legacy is uh, doing the same thing with hashtag Beckles, and he's he's the uh, most junior pilot at the Legacy Airlines.
0: You know, it, we've all kind of dread this. You know, uh, the the pilot group uh, doesn't matter what airline you fly for, unless you're a cargo operator or a private operator like lucky old uh, Roger. There, uh, you know, you're really keeping a close eye on the industry because as of right now with bailouts and all that, it's all good, you know, you you want money from the government. Great. But you can't lay off any pilots or employees. They can leave voluntarily. You just can't furlough them. But uh, what's going to happen when those dates are, what is it? August 1st. When, when a lot of that bailout restriction is lifted, um, it's a big question. And although many of the CEOs out there have said, no, we're going to do our best to not, you know, get people furloughed and on the street and whatnot, but if they have to, they have to. And, and that's really the big fear. So let's see what happens. Um, you know, and, and not only do these bases shrink and suspend operations, fleets are being suspended as well. Uh, they're Aircraft operators around the globe, parking aircraft in the desert. And Rob's holding up uh, one of the many photos of just rows and rows and rows of aircraft. Just go on any medium, YouTube or whatnot. Yeah. Oh, Kansas it's amazing.
1: City. It was Delta Airlines uh, planes parked in Kansas City. It was. Oh, thank you, my my daughter. Where's my brownie? Brownies, as we. Uh, Where's my brownie? <laughs> do the punch <laughs> Take a leg, woman. We need more brownies. No. <laughs> <laughs> my God, what's she doing over there? Anyway <laughs> yeah it, it was really, really impressive and sad to see uh, and and just coincidentally, I went from Kansas City, where all the delta aircraft were parked, to uh Tulsa, where American Airlines has a lot of airplanes parked, and just to see them two combined in one day, I mean every everybody on the bus and the shuttle and we we're all yeah. just like going, oh my goodness, it's it's it really drives it home when you see the airplanes just sitting on the ground because you really uh, it's you know you really don't think about how much art is in the air at one time you know what i mean yeah, i mean we know because they're you know we fly but you know, just to see them all on the ground in one spot at one time it's like man these things need to be up in the
0: air flying yeah, and making they money they really you do know? and and it's it like you said it, it's one thing to see it on TV or to see it on the internet or YouTube video, drone footage of all these airplanes and stuff, which is impressive. I mean, all around the world you can see drone footage of, you know, countless heavy and wide-body international aircraft parked on the ground. Now domestically, we're starting to see some of the smaller airplanes. Well, why do we see all these airplanes? Because in an effort to reduce our footprint in the flying out there, these companies have decided to park airplanes, but they're not just randomly parking airplanes. They're parking the airplanes that, one, are not being used because of international operations being completely stopped right now, and two, they're parking aircraft that they had intention to retire in the near future, and those schedules have just been completely obliterated and said, okay, we were going to retire them anyway, let's just go ahead and retire them Right now. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, I found an article that Legacy Airlines has officially retired the Embraer 190 and the Boeing 767 fleet, which were originally scheduled to retire by the end of 2020. So, really, it's only about a year ahead of schedule. The airline has also accelerated the retirements of its Boeing 757s and the Airbus A330 300s. Additionally, Legacy is retiring 19 of its Bombardier CRJ-200 aircraft operated by one of their subsidiaries. These changes remove operating complexity and will bring forward cost savings and efficiencies associated with operating fewer aircraft types. Sounds very familiar. It will also help Legacy focus on flying more advanced aircraft as they continue to receive new deliveries of their Airbus A321 NEOs and the Boeing 737 MAX, and 787 families. So they've parked all these kind of the older aircraft, the aircraft that were scheduled to retire anyway because of whatever strategy the legacy airlines had. And it just basically happened overnight. What about domestic air? You guys operate one type of aircraft, which has been a streamlined model since its inception. so other than the max. I,
3: I think yeah. that's helping us a lot as far as, you know, yeah, we don't have to retrain anybody once things get, you know, if things were shuffled since we don't have to shuffle airplanes. Um, but we do have quite a few parked. I think we're not quite half this is the last thing I read. I don't remember the exact number, so um, I don't want to quote them, but it, it was mo- it was up there. Um, out of the not quite 800, it was Mm -hmm. 300 and something that are currently. And
0: that's a lot of airplanes to be parked. I mean, half the airplanes that theoretically means you need half the pilots that you had prior to this whole mess. So, you know, that's it for the headlines. You know, we, we've been talking about it for longer than I thought, but I just wanted to get those headlines out there and kind of give everyone kind of a rundown on what we see as aviators out there for the industry as the days roll into weeks and the weeks roll into months we must not forget that this too shall pass these headlines while they are scary because of what they imply about the uncertainty of our industry now more than ever we need to be reminded why we became aviators in the first place why many of us still look up to the sky and dream of someday soaring or even why we must remember that all we have in the end is each other. Lately uh, in, in the show, we've been having guests on and we've been talking about programs like EAP, the Employee Assistance Program, uh, the WINGS Program that Legacy currently has, Hims Program or the Human Intervention Motivational Study. Uh, and you can find more information about that at the himsprogram.com, and mentor programs to name a few. Recently, a friend posted uh, on one of the social media sites about the suicide awareness hotline. And that really kind of shook me a little bit. You know, I I personally am not that type of uh, person that would kind of think about those kind of things. Uh, You know, I always kind of see the light, uh, at least in my life so far. That's that I've been able to say that. I feel fortunate that I've been able to say that. But it kind of stops you for a moment to think, wow. Are there aviators out there that have been thinking that way? And I'm sure the answer to that at some point is yes. So just be aware that you know, there are hotlines and people always willing to help. And, and if you can help or you haven't checked in on a friend lately, check in on them now. Because now's the time, especially if they're in the aviation industry. They don't have to be a pilot. They can be anything in the aviation industry or any industry that's struggling right now. Uh, and just reach out and, and let them know that you're thinking about them. Because that phone call could absolutely save a life.
1: Yeah, you remind me of, uh, uh, since it's just so fresh in my mind, I just listened to uh, episode 39 with uh, you and uh, Owen talking about that whole thing, uh, you know, it, it's a lot, we're, you know, it's a special lifestyle that we have and you kind of get addicted to it, I guess, in some way or so form, you know, I, I kind of can relate to to you and to him where you, you know, you like to go to certain cities and, you know, go running or jogging or whatever it is, or, you know, go find a great barbecue place or beer. And that's kind of the allure to, to, you know, some, to this job. And a lot of people look forward to that and with things the way they have been you know everything locked down being restricted um it's almost it's very depressing to go out on the road now i mean there's there's no there's hardly any socializing um i think things are taking a turn for the better right now but um you know up until this point um you know there it's it's it hasn't been anywhere near what it used to be and that can be very depressing for some people um especially who you know people who really use you know, work to socialize and, and, you know, go out and meet new people or whatever. So uh, they, they may be feeling that, uh, you know, that downward spiral where, you know, Hey, my life is not good. It sucks, you know, and they may turn to, you know, substance abuse, alcohol, alcohol, or, you know, even worse, you know, like you said, suicide. So yeah, it's um, yeah. You should always make sure you're, you know, say hi to somebody and, and, and see how they're thinking or whatever that way. Uh, you know, you never know if they're right at that tipping point, you may bring them back on this side of the, uh, the good side and say, Hey man, let's, yeah, let's absolutely. talk, you know,
0: you know, pilots are supposed to be cool and collective under pressure. I mean, that's the, the persona that we're supposed to have, but we're people, we're human and not just pilots, but anybody, uh, not just the aviation industry as well. You know, when is enough enough and how many people are suffering in silence, uh, not, Talking about it, you know, keeping it all in, and that's yeah,
1: yeah that's the day I'm a talker. Part, yeah. I mean, I'm,
0: I stub my toe and I tell everybody, "Oh God, I stub my toe!" You know, come oh, man. yeah, yeah, that that piece know, of furniture jumped right out in front of me, man. Damn damn. Toe, man, what the hell. So, I, you know, that's me. But a lot of people aren't like that. A lot of people they keep it in, and and that's it's tough. Yeah. And, so, and
3: there might be people like I think we're all probably lucky, and we have significant others that we like but yeah. some people don't <laughs> and they might be stuck with somebody that's yeah
1: that's true <laughs> yeah you never well, know what's going on so it's always be be kind to one another that's one thing and and yeah just
0: say hi you know that's a good start you know that's it it all starts with a smile sometimes or a or although or it's hello. hard to do that with a math con <laughs> hey how you doing buddy what's going on yeah, it's all good <laughs> You just got to see if they can smile with their eyes. That's kind of how it goes. That's right. That's right. So let's move on to the uh, the next part of the show, which I'm very happy that I have the three of you on the show with me because I want to talk about some of the biggest challenges that we've had in aviation and tell a little bit about there we were. You know, talk about the the stories from the flight line. You know, could any of you have ever imagined that this is what we would be dealing with when we first started out on this adventure to earn our wings? I'd venture to say, no way. Our biggest challenges back then were things like, how do I figure out that crosswind component again? And does it exceed the limitation? I I don't know. You know, what are the biggest challenges that we've had in GA? And if you guys can remember back far, Roger, let's start with you. What were some of the very early challenges that you can remember, the hurdles that you struggled with and you you overcame in your private pilot rating?
2: Well, for me personally, remembering back, the biggest challenge for me, quite frankly, was juggling that with going to school full time. Um, I took up flying. I think I mentioned it before when I was in college and when I decided that I was not going to go into the medical field. Uh, and I was going to go into aviation, I still stayed in school to to finish up my degree. And so I just did my private um, and instrument training in my quote unquote spare time. You know, I still have a a degree in a basically um, a, a bi- a biology and chemistry weighted field in nutrition. And so I still had labs. And I'm not going to lie, my grades did suffer a little bit. Now, fortunately, it wasn't that bad, but, um, they definitely did suffer and it was a, the flying actually was a little bit of a, it was a secondary thing to me because I still, I was fortunate enough that, um, my parents were primarily helping put me through school and I owed it to them to, to put my best foot or primary foot forward in terms of, of staying in school and, and being successful in, in that. And so then I had to basically fund my own flying and do the flying on the side. So then I've got the the financial burden that came down to me because I was not um, getting any help for that, which meant that I had to find a, a job to do in order to pay for it while going to school. And so it's like I had, you know, school full time. And then I, I I mean, there were times where I worked 30 to 35 hour weeks when I was in school. And then, then there, then there was the flying that kind of came after all of that. And so for my private, my instrument, um, they took me longer than some people because I was doing it very much on the side. And, and while I was going to school and working for, you know, in order to pay for it. And so that's, that's definitely the thing that I remember the most about that. Um, you know, to, sometimes I look back, you know, every, all those things that your parents tell you about how how you, you, you'll you wish that you were young again. You know, I, sometimes I wish, I, I think I missed a little bit of the college experience because of that, because I was just so busy. I, I did not party. I didn't do any like the, the typical college student. I didn't do any of that because I was just yeah. swamped doing, doing every everything else. And I kind of regret that a little bit, mostly just because, you know, college was such a, looking back, that was, that was some of the greatest times, even despite all of that. But, um, flying was just, you know, kind of part of that. in in that time of my life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I can understand. And I remember you talking about juggling all of that, you know, sleep was something that was a, a very rare thing for
2: you. Uh, oh so- man, it was terrible. Sometimes like, I, I worked in the international sports department and I would, I would ref basketball until midnight. And then I had a 5am biochemistry class for two quarters in a row. It's like, it, it, it was killing me. Not, I couldn't do it now. Uh, unfortunately, when you're young and dumb and invincible, you know, it's a little bit more possible, but holy cow, it was, it was definitely, it was hard.
0: Yeah. There's a reason that uh, we do college when we're young and, and still forming those precious brains of ours, because once you get older, you either have too sensible to go through it, or it just becomes that much more difficult. So Jerry, what about you? Uh, GA experiences that you'd like to share?
3: Yeah. So after getting my private pilot license, um, I remember just switch, when switching over to learning instrument, mm-hmm. um, instrument rating, just how much harder that is, you know, getting your mind into, it's just a whole different way of flying. Yeah. And I just remember initially having more issues with that than private pilot stuff coming more easily. Yeah. Um. And I remember one one particular flight, I'm flying with my instructor, and we're we're, we're flying an approach, and I must have gone below minimums, or I don't remember exactly what I did wrong, but my instructor, and this stays with me to this day, Brian, who's at Legacy with you guys, um, he just pipes up and goes, ring, 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 Mr. and Mrs. Brian, I'd like to, I, I'm calling and I regret to inform you that your daughter has passed away. Basically saying I flew into a mountain or or something along those lines. And that was like, yeah, this stuff is serious.
0: And what was the purpose for this? Why, why is he saying this to you in the, in the airplane like that?
3: (laughs) I guess I don't, I think I, you know, I just went below minimum. So Uh. what he's saying is you can't do that.
0: Yeah. It's trying to convey the seriousness of, of being off on an instrument approach. It could be. But real. she
2: was very successful with it. She remembers it even to this day.
0: Yeah. Yes. It's funny mm-hmm. how some of these times you're with instructors and, and they say things that are a little bit off the beaten path and not what you expect. And you remember them for a lifetime.
3: Well, yeah. Cause you look back in your logbook and some of your flights, you're not going to remember all the, you know, monotonous that you do over and over and over to get stuff right. Right. And some of them are clear as day, you know, from what was 25 years ago. Yeah. So yeah. That stuck with me that's, and I don't go below minimums. So
0: <laughs> that's it. Not even, not even to take a look, see nothing <laughs> because you can always go around. That's, um, right. that's right. When in doubt, go around. And you know, your your story reminded me of a story that I was told. I was flying with a, a captain back in my Sandpiper days, and she was one of the first captains that I flew with that was a woman that was my age or younger that just, she didn't take shit from anyone, which is a common theme, especially with a lot of female aviators, uh, Jerry, I know you're one of those individuals as well. Cause we've flown together, right? Um, when I got in
3: the, yeah. I was going to say when I got in the plane with you, that's right.
0: You're like, yeah, but <laughs> no. Uh, but, um, I flew with her for like a m- month and I was shocked at how many people gave her a hard time because she was a, a woman, an attractive woman at that. And and people were like, you're the F.O. No, I'm the captain, ma'am. Oh, is it safe? I'd look at them like, what? What do you... She's a cap. She's, she's in charge here. She's an excellent aviator. And uh, I just, it just was always something. But she never let that get to her. And to get you kind of an idea of her, her humor and her personality, not only did she not let that kind of shit bother her, that she was telling me stories like, oh, yeah, you know, when I, when I upgraded to Captain... I flew with this uh, Czech airman during my IOE and everything was going great. And, but I got a little low on a practice approach. We were doing a visual approach, but we were using the, the ILS as a practice. And so we're coming in, you know, it's a flight with passengers in the back and he reached up and turned off both flight directors. And he's like, Oh, let's just make this a purely a visual approach. And this was her first visual approach straight in, not using guidance as a captain in the left seat. And as all of us have been in both seats at one point or another, we know that the sight picture is different, especially when you're new and which your muscle memory and which hand you're using for what is very much new. And she tells me this story that when we flew together all those years ago, and uh, she says, you know, there I was flying along and I, and I guess I got a little low on the glide path and, you know, it all looked okay to me, but it was a different sight picture for me. And as I continued down, you know, the call outs were being made and my Czech airman that was sitting in the right seat, giving me IOE says, Hey, um, and he used her name. We'll call her Susan. Uh, Hey Susan. Um, I, I don't want to say you're a little low, but I'm looking at my window over here and I just saw two squirrels <laughs> over here. And she's laughing her butt off. She said she barely could land the aircraft. And but she she planted it, she rolled it out. And once they got off the air, uh the runway, uh, she looked at him and she's just crying and laughing. And he's just cracking up because he made her laugh. And she goes, I'll never forget that. <laughs> she goes, I just saw two squirrels <laughs> over here. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's those little kind of things that your instructor or someone will have said to you. And you'll always remember that. And so I guarantee you she'll never fly low on approach ever again. So it's an amazing. These little stories and these little kind of tidbits that we share amongst each other, and you never forget them. Rob, your private pilot training was very unique. What struggles did you have? Um, all of it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh well yeah it was
1: pretty unique in the fact uh that I actually trained out of Phoenix Sky Harbor for my private um so my my first uh introductory flight was going through the whole get the atis get your clearance call call uh metering call ground you know and and go to two different ground frequencies and uh, And I'm like, why? this is just to get out of the airport. This is crazy. Um,
0: So your very first flight. What was my very first flight? Your very first flight. You had to contact and did the instructor take care of it all or did he try to get you to do it?
1: Um, Well, he told me what to say and uh i said it and then wow yeah i mean i i had a clue going into what i needed to hear and and, and you know because we kind of went over that and during a uh a ground school uh, and remember my flight instructor was a person that I was good friends with before so we had a lot of conversations you know leading up to my first lesson so i i had a clue what i needed to listen to and hear yeah. and i've been listening to like a I i had a uh uh what do you call it a a scanner and i would tune in the, the local, you know, frequency for tower and departure. So I'd listen to airplane stuff, you know, I was pretty geeked out at that point. <laughs> I'd listen to that stuff. Um, just sit down on the, on the patio, you know, having a drink. Um, and so I just listened to it, just kind of, you know, you hear the lingo and hear the, you know, the, the yeah. cadence and everything like that. So yeah. kind of knew what to get, get into. And I, plus I'd been in the military up until that point. And um, we had to learn how to communicate with, with uh, air traffic controllers to move aircraft around the airport and stuff. So, you know, I I had a a fighting chance (laughs) when I first got on the the airplane, but um, that was, uh, that was a lot, you know, and I'm like, man, this is, you know, here I am taxing around with a lot of domestic airplanes and um, America West was the the big airplane, uh, the the other big uh, air airline at the airport at the time and uh-huh. you know here I am in a little 172 SP and I was I was feeling a little you know overwhelmed and um yeah uh intimidated by the whole experience and um uh but you know you quickly learn from it um but it it was a very very um it was very evident to me that a lot of this aviation stuff is going to be you know learn by sipping water from a fire hose. You know, learn by fire. You're just gonna have to get out there and you're gonna make mistakes. Hopefully they're not, you know, the, the descending below minimums and seeing squirrels and,
3: <laughs>
1: and well,
3: all we were VFR. We <laughs> yeah, always VFR. <laughs>
1: so yes. That kind of stuff. But you know that that was um that was one of the challenging things and just operating in and out of the uh the Broadway. and then I had a, I got the solo out of bravo i mean we went to a small airport to get my solo endorsement but then they had to endorse me to solo out of bravo airspace and so um you know a lot of that stuff is is is, i guess it's kind of standard but um there's not too many flight schools that just operate out of bravo airspace so that was kind of unique at the time and um i take pride in it now because you know that that's what i went through but um you know that it was overwhelming so you know if you're a future aviator or whatever learning thinking about getting into it you know the, the radios um there's just a person on the other end of the, the radio so you're just going to talk to them uh like we're talking right now if you're you well, you'll pick up the lingo eventually but um you know just as a human yeah. being you know hey i'm a new pilot help me out here what am i what do i Student need to do pilot, what do i need to say
0: say again <laughs> yep you know, so and you was, and you raise some great points here that I haven't talked about or, or thought about in many years. Uh you were listening to a scanner. Okay, now we have live ATC anybody with a internet yeah. connection and a cell phone or a laptop or tablet or whatever. I mean even a laptop, my daughter goes, "Oh, you're you even have a laptop? Who no one uses a laptop anymore." Right. Yeah. So anyone with ATC, liveatc.net uh and I'll put that in the show notes um anybody can listen to it any airspace, any you know, live ATC, you can listen to archives. If you're a pilot out there flying the line and you heard something weird or something funny, uh, just jot down the Zulu time, which is usually displayed on one of your screens in front of you as, the, as an airline pilot or a commercial pilot, and then jot down the frequency and you can go back and, and archive, search for it. And usually I think it's a 30 minute block, you have to find it. Not all frequencies are of the same quality. Sometimes there are multiple frequencies all rolled into one. So. You might not hear your audio clip that you want, but a great way to train, great way to study. Uh, I too had the little handheld scanner that I would sit there in in both my my office at home and then later as I became an instructor at my office at work, and I would have the scanner up. And if I had a solo student going up doing their three full stop taxi backs for their landing endorsement, um, I was sitting there on the sideline. I'd tell the tower, okay, I'm going to hop out. My, soul's, my student's going to do their three stops to get their endorsement. And uh, I'd sit there with the scanner, and I was able to, to do that. I remember my solo endorsement was at an uncontrolled airspace tower, uh, Class E for everywhere. And uh, my instructor jumped out and had a little handheld, and he was talking to me. And I was so nervous. Okay, this is we're going back in time here, but I was so nervous that as I made this beautiful traffic pattern came down for my very first landing right on the paint on the any point markers. And as soon as I touched down, I rolled for a little bit and then took off again. And I can hear Luca, which he's been on the show now a couple of times. Luca goes, no, 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 Anthony, full stop, please. A full stop. Come back. A full stop. okay? do full stop. A taxi back. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> there I was, you know, and he was doing his due diligence. What airport? That was in Albuquerque. This the is at Double Eagle, Eagle, Double Eagle oh, okay. Airport. Uh, yeah, just northwest of Albuquerque International. And nice. he was cracking that whip, you know, and at the end of it, it just a great experience. But I was at the polar opposite of what you were experiencing. You were thrown into a Class Bravo airspace as a student pilot on your first flight, and and your instructor even had you talking on the radio. Something that most people that are new to aviation don't even start talking on the radio until maybe their third or fourth lesson. False sense of confidence. (laughs) (laughs) Well. You know, I, my hat's off to you, man Because talk about, you mentioned drinking from the fire hose I think you're drinking from the river, buddy Because that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a lot to handle on, on a, Especially on a first uh, flight in GA. There was a
1: lot of uh, ums and ahs On the mic <laughs> that well, I bet I bet Uh, uh yeah. Um <laughs> and, uh... What? What?
0: <laughs> So uh, aircraft calling, you got a stuck mic, check your mic. Say again, Oh, stuck mic. We all know the stuck mic stories. If yeah, you want to know stuck mics, go to YouTube, search stuck mics. And there's really entertaining things that have been said over the years. I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus. What airline has a tendency to have more stuck mics than any other? Delta. But, you know, it's, it's uh, <laughs> very entertaining. Um, did you hear that one where they're on guard
1: the, 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 the new on guard one where they're going uh, you know you tune in 12115 and somebody goes where is he where, where'd he go where is he and then of course somebody goes you're on guard and the guy's like there he is <laughs> thank you ladies and gentlemen i'll be here all day please remember to tip your stewardesses <laughs> on the way out
0: <laughs> so as we're talking about our very first you know flying experiences we've you know connected our, our brain tissue and trying to get those neuroconnections connections back and i brought you back let's start talking about your first student as a certified flight instructor roger you probably have the most experience of all of us uh, with flight instruction, at least the most time under your belt, and, the, and probably some of the more scarier stories. But let's, I'm not really digging for scary, I'm digging for just experiences with your very first student. So here you are, ready to go, gung ho, happy to be now in the other role as a flight instructor sitting in the right seat of a piston powered aircraft. And you are given your first student. Was that at Tailwind Flight Center? That was
2: at Tailwind Flight Center. You know, I I have done a fair amount of instructing in different capacities. You know, I started at Tailwind, and then I've since done some other some other stuff. I don't actually remember um, some of the first things I remember actually. You know, tie in with with the program uh, mostly through you. I mean, my first time flying at Tailwind was with you in the airplane, and I had to do my my checkout. That's right.
0: You had to get I, checked
2: out. You know, we, we are coming back from deer Valley and what happened between deer Valley and Chandler. I, I don't know. We survived though. You know, we're both still here and we both still have jobs. So it couldn't have been that bad.
0: The infamous Bravo um, corridor through Phoenix sky harbors. Uh, VFR sure, corridor. I didn't know,
2: yeah, I didn't know anything about Phoenix. That was one thing that I also remember, you know, when I first started instructing, I moved to, to take a job you know, in the Phoenix area at tailwind flight center. And I didn't know anything about the Phoenix area. I didn't know anything about the Phoenix airspace. And so, you know, not only am I trying to figure out how to, how to fly, fly the airplane and teach someone how to fly the airplane. I was also trying to figure out where the, the green fields, where's I 10 and where's the green fields. Like where's east of I 10 and west of I 10 and the witch's hat and the something else and whatever. I did. I. I still actually didn't make it out of there, knowing, knowing where half the stuff was. Oh, really? um, oh yeah, I, you know I pretty much stuck to. Um, I would usually there were those two racetracks. Um, they had a name, but there was a couple of racetracks, and then there was Firebird Raceway. I went south of there.
0: Okay. So I like got. Oh, they uh...
2: were the North Test Track, or yeah,
1: the North Test Track, where like I think Nissan or Toyota or yeah. something.
2: I used like that, that a lot, ransom. and then there was that little airport next to next to that.
1: Oh, just south of. Uh, yeah, just to the south and east of it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty much. And I mean, I usually and I and I got to know Maricopa, and, you know, a big mountain with M on it. It was hard to miss. But other than that, like you know, that's how I spent my first month or two was trying to figure out the the airspace. My first students I remember were actually. Um, the Icelandic guys that came over and then flying flying them to Vegas and doing checkouts for them. Those were a lot of my first students. I flew with you know, another guest of your show, um, Jean-Michael. Yeah. I flew with him within a couple, I think within a couple weeks of showing up at Tailwind when we did a night cross country to somewhere. He might've been um, your
0: first, like he had been flying there before and, and been one of my students as well. But I think he was one of the first students that you flew with quite a bit because once i think he i unloaded he a lot because i was doing the assistant chief uh, flight instructor duties a lot more and you know we we had hired quite a few flight instructors so i was kind of the chief pilot and i were kind of unloading students to to get them over to other instructors that were newer and that you know they've been around for a while that way the kind of like uh a student that have, had experience was going with a new instructor so that the instructor didn't feel overwhelmed with somebody who had never been in an airplane before. And it wasn't until a few weeks later that we started, you know, you would get a new student for the next person to walk in the door. If you're there, you're there.
2: Right. And I remember I remember that. And it just kind of, it, it just so happened that the way that things, I, one of my first students was a was a private, which he was a little bit of a challenge. He was actually military. He had been a navigator and, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes kind of made the leap from navigator to pilot that he knew, he thought he knew a little bit more than he did. So there were some challenges with that, but as it was most of a majority of my instruction became instrument. And I think that's where, um, I think some of more of my passion in instrument actually lies with the instrument rating. And, you know, I, you know, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, I actually taught at a, at at a college here in their 141 program doing their instrument class for, um, for a few semesters also. Um, and I think part of that, I mean, I'm just most comfortable with instrument. Maybe that's because I fly, you know, mostly under IFR now. Um, but just even in my basic instructing days, I did a lot of an IFR. I don't actually remember who my first solo endorsement was. Oh yeah. I remember there was a golf cart that we would go out there and I remember being out there and watching, but I don't remember who it was. I, I, yeah, don't even know if i could make a guess to be honest with you. yeah
0: yeah. and the airport so. you had mentioned uh casa grande airport in no, uh, kcg it was not casa
2: grande it was no? one it was a small like yeah it's like, like phoenix airpark or
1: yeah, it's it's uh if you're looking at Casa Grande, it's like it's west north. of Casa Grande and, and north. West and northwest
2: north. of Casa Grande.
1: I gotta look at an area chart to, to remember the name of it, but it was actually would, really small. They, at right. the time that I left, the only thing they had was a runway and a gas tank there.
0: So you could stop. I never
2: actually stopped the, there. It was great for when you're over the north test track and you're doing simulated engine outs you know, no one basically was my out. If something happened that I, you know, okay, well I know where there's an airport. And so that was my little area.
0: I think you're talking about, uh, a 39, which is action that regional. Sounds
2: familiar. Yeah.
0: They have uh what is what it, is it again? again? Action regional. Yeah. A 39, which is just West of Casa Grande, Northwest of Casa Grande by maybe, I don't know, five to six miles. S- that's the only thing yeah, that, that I A39
2: can see. A39 sounds right, and that location sounds right. I don't recognize yeah, the name. Yeah,
0: Indian it, Reservation. It could have
2: changed. That was a while ago. Yeah, right? that's
0: true. Yeah, Casa Grande, I remember that's where I used to log all my instrument approaches because when the Phoenix area was busy, yeah. there's no way you were going to get an instrument approach into one of the surrounding airports around the Class Bravo because Phoenix air traffic control would just didn't have time for you. So what you did is if you actually had IFR weather or or IMC weather, I should say, Uh, in the Phoenix area, and you wanted to actually log an actual instrument approach, and you were in the south of the basin, you would fly south to Casa Grande, get on with Albuquerque Center, Albuquerque Center, those controllers get to log that they controlled you on an instrument approach. And the center controllers don't normally do that. It's normally the, the, uh, the arrivals and departure controllers that are located usually in the metropolitan area. So the Albuquerque Center, if it wasn't too crazy busy was always willing to have a Cessna 172 practice an instrument approach at an airport that is normally classified as class echo so uh now now I know
2: that you just made that sound extremely easy but the actual process of getting a clearance from from the Phoenix Tracon to get there was a pain in the rear
1: oh well a 123.7 wouldn't give it to you Usually, think that's the frequency.
2: Trying to get up, because if it was actually IFR, because I think 123.7 is the south side of, of Sky Harbor, but yeah. trying to get out, like if you're on the ground in Chandler and you need to get a clearance through the Bravo airspace, yeah. you'd sit yeah. on the ground for 20 minutes because, God yes. forbid, there's a cloud in the Phoenix area for the Drakon guys. Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, the mountains and everything obstructed the radar too, so I think that had a lot to do with it.
0: And I think uh, usually the conditions were just right where it was like 1,500-foot uh, ceiling, So you could leave IFR uh, or marginal or leave VFR, marginal VFR with the tower and then pick it up with Albuquerque Center as soon as you were outside of that 30 nautical mile ring. I know I've done that a few times. And then you'd hold in the stack over at the Stanford VOR, the TFD identifier. 14.8. Yep. Yeah, fourteen point eight, you know it, and uh, you'd sit Stanfield. there. And Stanfield
2: VOR, you'd sit. I'm pretty there. disappointed that you forgot the name of that VOR where we all stacked up over, though.
0: Yeah, so it's Stanfield. Stanfield TFD. Okay. Yeah. Now, how many hours did I spend in there? And you know, look up there, there's a Cessna. Too yeah, many. I look down, there's another Cessna. We're all waiting to do the same damn thing. And when the uh, when the guys in the north uh, side of the the, the basin. Uh, and their flight schools found out that that was the best way to do that. They would, they would try to get that IFR clearance to go through Bravo to come over, and they, they often couldn't. So they'd go either up to 10,500 feet and try to cross over the top uh, if they can pick it up that way, or they'd go all the way around to uh, the, the west and just stay out of the airspace to come around. And we'd all be stacked in the stack. And after a while, you tell your student, yeah, it's not going to work out because we'll be here all day. You know your entire hour lesson is going to be holding and not shooting an approach. So let's just go back. So, but then there was Tucson. You could always fly forty five minutes down to Tucson and shoot an instrument approach there and just.
1: What about Gateway or Willie? I used to go there all the time. Yeah,
0: Williams Gateway was fun, but again, if it was instrument, you had to get it, pick up the, your the beginning of your approach with the Phoenix approach control, and if they were busy, you weren't you weren't going to get it. I don't
2: did did Gateway have a have an ILS on three zero because I think they yeah. had them to one two, but I think that the that the traffic pattern they didn't like to do.
1: Yeah, they had one the three zero center, I believe it was. Was there? Yeah, they whenever you went missed, they vector you out to the east, down to the southeast, and come all and they the way back you around. Back around under it. Yeah. yeah, they they'd still they'd vector you out pretty far though they. I think you like, didn't been like in a 172 very, it's like a 20 mile final.
2: <laughs> yeah. I didn't go there very often. I don't re- really remember why, but I there must have been some kind of reason.
0: I don't know. I don't know, but those were the days. Yep. And Jerry, uh, did you have uh, your did you recall your first student in in all of this discussion I here? I did.
3: I remembered my first student, but what I didn't remember Without looking back in my logbook, which I did. Oh, sweet. Right um, <laughs> I took, so I got my private pilot in high school, instrument commercial in college, and then I actually finished my CFI the summer after I graduated. So mm-hmm. it's summertime. So I was taking my check ride back in St. Louis, I went to college out near Kansas City. So it's about a four hour difference. And I had a job waiting for me once I finished my CFI. So I, I took my check ride and then my first student was the next day. So I must have driven. Wow. I must have taken my check ride. I don't remember this, but the dates I took my check ride the one day and my first student was the next day. So
0: well it was still very fresh in, in Yeah. So <laughs> in I memory. must have
3: driven Take my ride in the morning, driven the four hours, got some sleep and got up and went to work. Yeah. So, um, but my, my first student, um, his name was Gary and the, the airport that I instructed at was very small, Sedalia, Missouri, um, DMO, and it was uncontrolled, nothing like the stuff you guys were talking about, could do whatever you wanted. Um, we were the only two 172s on the field, very few airplanes. Wow. So, um, and Gary had already been working on his private pilot with um, the instructor who I was taking their place. Mm. So he had been doing a few things. I, looking back, I remembered, I didn't remember this, but I um, flew with him three times and then I signed him off to solo because oh, wow. he had already done some previous stuff. So he was my first Student and my first sign off. Nice. Yeah.
0: You know, and, and this is the stuff that we haven't really, I don't know about you guys, but I haven't really thought about this in a long time. And I was sitting there, you know, after the show we did, episode 39, was a really great interview. You know, Owen Koto, a wonderful individual who I met years back. And just when he was telling me, yeah, I held positions in this department, in that department, in this department. I'm like, oh, my God, you could be running this airline before you know it and he looked at me and he's like, Yep. <laughs> it's like <laughs> that's you know, and hopefully someday he that might be a goal for him, to, at least to be in in a position to where he can make a difference. Um and he definitely well qualified and well deserved if that's uh what the future of his journey uh holds and so i thought okay episode 40 is coming up it's not a, you know it's not like episode 50 or 100 or anything like that but it's a, it's a nice round number and considering everything that's happening and all the things that we were talking about at the onset of the show and and what really have been inundating all the podcasts about aviation lately you know the covid segment you know and, and the furlough segment and all this stuff and I, it's important it's important to kind of talk about it it's a kind of good to know what's going on in our take of it, especially for those listeners out there that are not in the airline industry and all they know is what they hear on the mass media uh, or mainstream media. And that's got an accuracy rating that is very low. I'm not going to put a number to it, but let's just say it could even potentially be in single digits. Or, <laughs> let's just say that. Um, but you know they report on one person reports it and everybody just reads what they wrote and reports it and there's really no confirmation of facts. And but a lot of the information out there is good and we try to focus on that. And we in thinking about it, I just thought, man, let's talk about GA stuff. Let's talk about when we were, you know, with our first student or as a our first student, you know. But as is the goal of most aviators, and I don't want to say every aviator, because most aviators, um, it is always to move forward, to get a bigger airplane, to get a job making more money so that they can have a very um, comfortable career with good quality of life. And when retirement happens, they don't feel like they have to continue to fly to make money because financially they're not in a good spot. So you always want it to go for the, the better, bigger brighter future, whether that's through cargo, whether that's through uh, charter 135 op, or private part 91 op, or an airline 121 op. And these are all uh, parts of Title 14 of uh, CFR, which is what the FARs are, the Federal Aviation Regulation, in the big book. And it it kind of all explains it. We're not going to get into that detail, but we've talked about when we were first a student we talked about our first student. Let's talk about our first airline job. We've all four of us have had that first part 121 airline job. Roger, you started out at a company that we've talked about before at ExpressJet. Is that your very first airline that you work for?
2: That was the first 121 airline that I worked for um, prior to going. To ExpressJet, I worked at a Part One Thirty Five outfit, which I only—they're very, very different. However, I only bring that up because I do think that it made it a lot easy. The transition was made a lot easier um, because I had been through a a formal ground school. You know, albeit not anything close to what ExpressJet was offering, but I did go through a ground school where we talked about in doc for company company procedures under a different. You know, not just Part Ninety One, but it was Part One Thirty Five, which does have some. Additional rules to it, um, along with the flight training, which you, um, with with a check airmen that was you know at least somewhat structured. Again, not nearly to the extent of what the airlines are offering. Um, But my first one one twenty one job was at Express Jet. It was I do think looking back, I'm almost positive it did make a big difference that I did have a little bit of prior experience to an organized, structured quote unquote airline, even though I won't go quite that far. Um, but it really, and I only say that because going through, you know, and even, even in this episode today, you guys are talking about the the fire hose that people always experience when they go, you know, I'm not going to lie. I didn't really experience that when I went to ExpressJet. jet. Um, I think there was 30, 32 in my class and You know, some of them had an easier time than others, and I never really felt all that much pressure. Um, And so so it was kind of fortunate. I remember my first flight, you know, going fast is fun, (laughs) but it also looks the same. That's like, that's the one thing that I remember. You know, you go through the whole simulator experience, then you go up, you're with your check airman, and, and you do your first flight, and it all looks the same. Yeah. You know, you're higher up and everything, but by the time you get up to 30 something thousand feet, it actually doesn't look like it's moving any faster than it does when you're at 3,000 feet in, the, in a 152. So it was almost like a little bit of a letdown and a disappointment, like, cause it all looked the same. Yeah. And, you know, I've had, I've had the opportunity to do a number of different things since then. And I still, I still very much enjoy it. I don't, don't get me wrong. Um, but, but I, I'm, you know, I gotta be honest, it was a little bit that first flight the first revenue flight and there's people in the back and we close the door and it was a little bit of a letdown because I remember thinking it all looks the same.
0: Yeah. You know and, and to this day I find myself especially, you know, prior to this whole reduction of flying, you know, I, I primarily bid and was very fortunate to be able to bid here at Legacy Airlines. Um a lot of the flying that entailed going to Hawaii and coming back. Uh, sometimes it was just out one leg out, one leg back the next day. So other times it was a four leg, four day trip that turned out to have a turn there on the first day with a local overnight. And then, you know, the next day you go to Hawaii and come back and and red eye back. And, but regardless, I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting there 37,000 feet heading West mock point seven, eight, God, can't this thing go faster? What's going on here? You know, it's just not fast enough. It's not fast enough.
2: Yeah, because you know those numbers look so big and you think back to your early days when you and you're going around and, and you're flying at sixty knots and now you're doing, you know, four hundred and fifty and it's still so slow. It's, it's like
0: Yeah. Well, until you're close to the ground and example, you take a hundred and let's just say a hundred and fifty thousand pound uh aircraft, like a A321 and you're coming back from Hawaii, and and or, or you're coming back from a trip, and, and you come to land, and you're landing at LAX, and they tell you, maintain 250 knots till advised. So you're, okay, you're 250 knots coming through 10,000 feet in a fully loaded aircraft, you got 190 people or so on board, and you're on the arrival path on altitude, and you're maintaining 250 knots because they're trying to space it out to make this whole zipper augmentation effect of the close parallel runways or whatnot. And uh, then they say, "Okay, uh, maintain 180 knots or better. You're cleared for the visual and contact tower at the outer marker." And now you're like, "Oh, I gotta slow down." (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, Oh, but I I can't level off much because I don't want to end up high, and I'm too fast for speed brakes. Now all of a sudden, now you're going too fast. Too fast for flaps. What am I gonna do? Those speed speed brakes or spoilers are not. Really good at slowing you down, especially on a three degree glide path, it's not going to happen. You, so, you can't get the flaps out. So, you have two options. You can either level off, turn off the autopilot, or change mode, level off, go straight and level for a while, which you're going to end up high. Slow it down to the point where you can get multiple stages of flaps out there, and then po- point the nose over. And try to recapture the glide path if you have enough altitude and it's not maneuvering anything to load either g factor or uh, excessive pitch or bank angles or anything like that and you can do it smoothly so that grandma on the back isn't getting scared that's one technique then we have the rubber speed brakes at least in the airbus 250 knots maintain 180 or better to the marker cleared for the visual approach two five left Gear down, gear comes down. Okay, now you got a lot of drag happening. The aircraft is slowing down. This is another technique. And now you don't have to really come off that three-degree glide path. Uh, So if you're all captured up, autopilot's coupled on a glide slope, you can get the gear down with the speed brakes, start extending flaps, and the aircraft, if you've done this enough times, you're coordinated, and air traffic control doesn't totally screw you, uh, with a, a very late call on that um that's another technique third technique which is one of my favorites maintain 250 knots roger and a minute goes by and you're like oh, we need to slow uh oh, oh okay uh, uh 220 knots or better okay go so roll it back to 220 oh we need to slow oh okay 200 knots are better okay roll back to 200 knots and you just play that game with them until they until they go okay 180 or better cleared for the ILS, whatever and and that's Really, the best technique because you're not allowing air traffic control to dictate. I know they have their needs and their what they have to do, but you also have to be able to be assertive when you need to as a pilot. So those kind of things are the great techniques that we've learned on the line here, you know, as we have decades of experience behind our belts. I know the 737, uh, Rob and Jerry, is very similar. In terms of, it doesn't slow down very quickly, does it?
1: It's got a very slick wing, for sure. Yeah, energy management—you'll learn that thing first time you fly it, for sure.
0: Yep. And when in doubt, if you're high, what can you do? (laughs) Dangle the Dunlops. (laughs) And if that doesn't work, level change, vertical speed, whatever. (laughs) Yep. Don't worry. They're not going to send you the bill yep. for the gas. You know, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Rob, what about you? Your first airline gig, how'd that turn out?
1: Uh, it turned out really good. Um, it, my first airline job was with Sandpiper. Um, and, uh, it was crazy cause, uh, I th- we went, we went through this in our, uh, during our initial interview, but, um, you know, I just needed that 100 hours multi-time to get to be qualified to apply for the job. And finally got that on a Sunday night, sent it out for the email. On Monday, I got a, a response from Sandpiper asking for an interview. Told them yes. They said, hey, when can you be here? Um, I said, well, whenever you, whenever you can get me there. So I was there on Tuesday, interviewed Wednesday and Thursday, or, or it may have been a, a day later than that, Wednesday and Thursday. And, and Friday um, was got the job offer, and they told me that the class started on Monday. So within a week, I was sitting in class, um, and that's that's pretty much all the only interview I've ever had. Um, luckily, we've had this uh, great flow through, and um, so now I'm here at uh, Legacy Airlines, yeah. and uh, it it's been truly remarkable. I feel, I I feel very lucky to to just have that kind of a you know progress report for my airline career it's been so easy and applied for one airline got that one job and here i am so yeah it's crazy
0: yeah any any exciting uh like what was what was the first day like do you remember that first day in class here you are all polished and <laughs> clean shaven well, and uh, good haircut oh, oh and, yeah, uh, yeah well, i'm I, happy to be I here
1: just... <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty exciting. I think um I don't remember exactly how many people were in my class. I think there was like 12 um and and about 5 of them were guys coming from the executive side.
0: Mm.
1: So we you know we we have to go through Indoc first. So 5 of those guys were were uh, on the executive side, so they had to go through Indoc on the on the uh, Sandpiper Airways side of the of the uh, certificate. And um so it was nice to have those 5 guys in class especially when we're going through all the, uh, you know, the blue book FM one company ops spec stuff. Yeah. Cause, uh, you could just, you know, go to these guys and they, they were giving you the gouge on everything. And, and, and even when it came down to, uh, when we got our computer passwords for saber and everything, um, they were like, Hey, you guys should put in your captain upgrades right now because you never know when that'll happen. You never and you want to have you, you never know. Yeah. And, uh, so I was like, okay, can you show me how to do that? So sure enough, plugged them in there, had them all lined up. And about five years later, completely out of my off my radar, didn't even know there was a vacancy bid out there. Oblivious. Um, I get a you know, a text message from a buddy. He's like, Hey, congrats, Captain. I'm yeah. like, what's this guy talking about? He's an idiot. I'm not a captain, I'm still a first officer, you know. Another text message later from another friend. Hey, congrats, Captain! I'm like,
0: why are these? I, people I think I was me? one of those friends. I kind of remember that. Yeah, <laughs> and I, and I'm and sure finally, I'm sure what was going through your head was I'm really rich. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So finally, a, a
1: friend of mine, um, who's actually a, a, a and also a tailwinder, um, he he was in he was a uh, two weeks um, junior to me as far as, uh, classes and stuff like that. And he's like, Hey man, we got, we just got the upgrade for uh, New York. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And he's like, no. And I was like, it's only been five years. You know, when we got hired here it was a 12 year upgrade in a sovereign ATR and it's only been five years. So I was like, this is hallelujah. Yeah. So off to New York I went. Yeah. And, uh, so it's, it's my career. I mean, we've been, you know, I've been we've been through the ups and downs and you know, obviously we're we're it's cyclical. Um, so we're going through one of the downsides now. But um overall, you know, I've been so lucky and fortunate just to be where I am and have have gone through everything that we've gone through and um not really have been affected too much as far as you know uh layoffs furloughs or or anything like that or displacements i mean the only real displacement i had was when um i was displaced out of chicago uh captain to new york captain it was just a base displacement so i mean that was actually in my mind i was actually a better move because i was um working my tail off at chicago and um just the uh the uh just the whole commuting thing was actually easier going to New York than it was going to shock Chicago at the time. So, um, I was very happy to get that displacement and, um, you know, so if, uh, out of the whole thing, I mean, my first airline gig has been awesome because I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still at my first job. And
0: how rare is that? <laughs> I mean, I'm, right? I'm in the same boat. Exactly. You are, you know, yeah. and we were hired and these captains were like, just wait, you're going to be furloughed at least two times and you're going to be out. You're going to be working at Home Depot I, for like six months and your yeah. wife's going to hate you and your kids are going to. Yeah. yeah. And yeah.
1: It You know, and I, and I listened, I've listened to a little bit of Jerry's story and Roger's story and, and, and it's, a, and it fascinates me because it I, I somewhat feel like I've been um not neglected, but like I'm missing out on, on some of the, you know, other you know, aspects of aviation or companies and stuff like that. And I'm like, man, I kind of wish I had that, but I'm not going to no. leave this gig to <laughs> no, go do that. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do mean? not but wish
0: that. No, I, I don't wish that on anyone. Not even. <laughs>
1: no, 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 it's not good. But Oh uh, my God, yeah, no. They have so many good stories though. And, uh, you know, like we started off in the beginning, mm. the storytelling is what kind of captivated me. So yeah, um, I'm just going to have to we go may create have stories.
2: Some, stability. A little less so, maybe.
0: Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, very true. And Jerry, you know, your, your first airline, we heard a little bit about it in the episode where, you know, you and Ty gave us the whole how you met and new hire class. So, you know, I love hearing the story. I, I love the fact that you guys are, are together happily with the family and, you know, just amazing to hear that. It's not something that you hear often. But let's talk about your first job and, at an airline. How was that other than meeting the love of your life right how can you top that right you know (laughs) no but it was fun
3: I had come from flight instructing for two years and flying single pilot 135 in a baron so I was so excited to get a job at an airline and just going there not only was Tyler in my new hire class but we became you know, the class was very, uh, became best friends, um, had a lot of fun, studied together, hung out together. So I loved it. I loved the whole thing before I was kind of just on my own. I had a, I was the only flight instructor where I worked. And so it was a whole different, yeah, just a whole different kind of way of working. Um, and my first airplane was the Jetstream 32, which, um, if you don't know, it's no autopilot, uh, no door um, on to the cockpit, no flight attendants, um, 19 seat turboprop, um, lots and lots of round dials up there. So um, a lot of a lot more work, you know, a lot more going on than where I had previously been. Yeah. So I, I remember just, you know, it was kind of overwhelming, but also lots of fun. We would fly nine legs a day in and out of St. Louis to tiny cities, bringing 19 people at a time into St. Louis Lambert to make connections or.
0: yeah, Lots of legs um, and, and uh, yeah, good, good time. Good experience. I mean, you, you had this new environment. New friends, and and I know you and Ty were friends before anything else, but uh, yeah, just what an amazing story to to have to go through your initial and you get it there, and you're in a turboprop. That, I mean, compare it. Just look up a jet stream versus a Cessna cockpit. You know, a 172, uh, and, and yeah it can be very (laughs) eye-opening to say that it's like that shot an airplane where they just pan across the dials forever
3: yeah (laughs) (laughs) it was it was fun though it was a fun you know I was young I could do anything I felt like so it wasn't you know it was yeah yeah I was I loved it
0: yeah So here we are talking about our experiences, our very first experiences when we were, you know, in general aviation, our first experiences as a flight inspector and our first experiences with an airline or our first major job. Let's talk about one of the factors of aviation that are commonly misunderstood. And that is our first experiences with the dreaded crash pad. Yeah, You know what I'm talking about, that uh, dingy apartment in a major city not too far from an airport or ground transportation where us pilots, especially when you're low on the totem pole and on reserve, and you need a place to stay because you have a 5 a.m. sign in and you live 1,800, 600 miles away from your home base, you have to fly in or commute. Well, if you can't commute in the day of hotels get very, very expensive, especially if you're in a major metropolitan area like New York City or Los Angeles. And if you're not willing to pay 100 to $150 a night for a middle-of-the-road hotel, if not, I dare say, a cheaper one, then you're probably better off finding yourself, as an aviator, a crash pad. Now, a crash pad is usually an apartment Uh, of some kind or a condo or a home or whatnot, where they put bunk beds in the bedrooms, usually two bunk beds or sometimes even three crammed into a small bedroom. And you go there, you rent the bed. Basically, you're a temporary roommate. Usually, four or five times a month, you find yourself having to commute in the night before, or maybe your trip ended late at night, and after your last opportunity to commute home, so you need a place to stay. Well, to save the money instead of spending $150 a night for a hotel, for about two or three hundred dollars, for most cases, you can pay for a monthly spot at a crash pad, and that's what you do. You kind of all get together. It's kind of on an honor system. You get a key to the place and you go in, you know, your bunk, if it's a, if it's a decent crash pad. Um, there are some situations where it's what they called hot bunks, where you have to sign up or let them know you're coming and then they'll reserve a place and you bring your own sheets with you and you set up a bed and you basically a place to sleep, a place to crash. And then the next day, you'd get up, you'd pack it all up, and you're off. You're on your way. Well, there are some nightmares out there that involve crash pads. Have any of you dealt with a nightmarish situation with your crash pad? Roger, let's start with you. Uh,
2: I'm I'm fortunate enough to say I don't. I would not say that I've had a nightmare. Crash pad situation, I've I've had two different crash pads and they were on two very different ends of the spectrum. My first one was actually worked out pretty well for, you know, mostly because of my situation. I was based up in the Los Angeles area and I was living kind of in Phoenix and living kind of in San Diego, Um, but I could kind of sit reserve when in San Diego. And so I didn't actually go to the crash pad very often the guys in the crash pad. I knew primarily; they were primarily very close to my seniority, um, at express jet. I knew them, um, you know, R- Rob might be able to appreciate this. Also, we had a actually two racquetball courts as part of the, the complex. And there was a guy that I could play racquetball with. And so sometimes I voluntarily would go to the crash pad when I was on reserve. Um, cause I, I would get to play racquetball, uh, it was a guy named Mark. And, and it, the complex was pretty nice. I knew most people there. Yes. There was some of the crash pad, um, issues, I guess, shall we just say that we're going on there, but not, um, not that really affected me very much, but again, that's because I was, I was kind of basically had this little golden triangle and, you know, getting between Phoenix and Ontario, you know, between, what was it? I don't even remember if it was U.S. Air or America West at the time and Southwest. I mean, I I had 20 flights a day and then I could go down to San Diego and drive it. And so it worked out pretty well. And that was a very different experience than after my furlough when I went to Chicago O'Hare and got more of the typical crash pad experience. And that was, I dreaded going there. That was very much like, you know, in the lead into this segment, that's what it was it was dirty it was dingy it was you know mold in the shower on the shower curtains and who knew who was going to be there it had this really funky smell from the moment you walked in there and it was just it was fairly gross now that being said is that a nightmare it, it, you know it wasn't i don't know if i'd say a nightmare because there are definitely stories that are worse but it was definitely i i, I think it's pretty much the stereotypical crash bed, dirty dingy who knew who knew who was going to be there who knew who knows what the guys were going to be doing or what they were going to talk about when you were there yeah. um and I'm, I'm just not into a lot of that kind of stuff and it was just not the it was not the greatest environment that i'd choose to spend my time in i guess is how i i would just kind of leave that
0: would you uh compare it to a college experience maybe like a college dorm experience or
2: it was way worse than a college dorm i mean when you're well yeah i mean in a college dorm you've got you might have a you might have a small room but you share it with one other person now you've got a small room that's got four bunk beds in it and now you've got eight guys trying to you know fight over the tv or what was going to be on be on tv um you have to cook your own food you know if you're in a college dorm the food i mean food is a big deal I mean, yeah, you're paying for it, but yeah, you could go down to the cafeteria and eat whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, pretty much, and and all was and all was great. And you're only sharing with that with that one other person, and you know, for, so for me personally, I, I there was a pretty big difference between you know, in terms of the some of the smells. Maybe I guess there there could be some of some of that. But again, uh, but even and again, cleaning <laughs> a bathroom, you know, in a dorm, you've got lots of you know people. Uh, in a communal bathroom, except it's also professionally cleaned multiple times during the day. Right. There is no professional cleaning in most crash pads. Yeah. And pilots are not, they slobs, a, a lot of them especially. And mostly it's because most pilots are guys. And guys generally are, are more slobs, especially when they're just staying at a place that's not their own. And they don't really take any responsibility for. Well,
0: they don't have their mom or their girlfriend or wife picking up after them. So, yeah, I I totally understand.
2: And that's true. (laughs) They just also, they don't have that. They don't have a personal connection to the place because they have no financial interest in it. And so, you know, you just got a lot of people. And I I mean, I would count myself included. It wasn't like I was lining up and volunteering to go clean the bathroom.
0: And why would you want to? Because it's not like your clean up it's like you're cleaning up after correct everybody else but
2: now you've got eight or ten guys who are all adopting that same mentality and some of them are going to be cleaner than others and things just get overlooked yeah and i and I just don't think that that you know like I said but multiple times a day the bathrooms in a college dorm are going to get clean you've got more people maybe sharing it but it's also I mean it's cleaner
0: right They're, they have people that, that take care of those kind of things correct yeah and, and Jerry, did you have any experiences with crash pads?
3: Yeah, I had I had a couple. Um my most recent when uh I was at Sandpiper and to upgrade I had to go to LaGuardia. Mm. And um so I got a crash pad, which was not easy because being a female, some there's some male some crash pads that only allow males. Ah yes. So that was hard in itself. I found one that was one of the houses real close to LaGuardia i could I could walk mm-hmm. to the airport, which I loved because I was also on reserve. That's another terrible thing if you're commuting on reserve and you have to sit in a city for five days in a row, you may or may not fly, so you can't afford possibly four nights of hotel right so um so yeah, so i I found this crash pad and it was it was one of those old houses, and they're neat they Kind of reminded me of a church when you went in almost because it was stained glass and a, a big staircase that creaked when you went up it. Oh, wow. um, but it had a kitchen and a family room that everybody shared. And there it was a three story house. So there were, I don't even know how many bedrooms, mm-hmm. five or six. But the one bedroom was just for females. And it had six beds, three bunks. And it had our own little refrigerator, microwave, and bathroom. So even though we shared the main kitchen and family room with everybody in the house, we did kind of have our own little bathroom. Just be for the the as Not as
0: gross. Yeah,
3: probably (laughs) not as gross. So it was actually fairly clean. Um, You know, good company. We'd go hang out in the family room. Yeah. Uh, hang out and stuff like that. The The worst part about that crash pad for me was when I would walk to and from the airport, if it was early or super late and you're in LaGuardia and it's like 0.3 for me to walk to the little, the bus that will pick you up and take you the other 0.2 or 3 to the airport.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And it was a free bus. It was an airport bus. I couldn't justify paying $10 for an Uber. Right. And if it was midnight, I would, I would debate, should I walk? Should I get an Uber? Right. And sometimes I would walk and I would just hold my phone out ready to call for help if I needed to. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and that's another thing that people don't really talk about it. I know that my wife, she has a pepper spray keychain, and, mm-hmm. you know, and we even have one for our daughter. Uh, not that it's something that we absolutely have to have but there is a level of comfort in knowing that in the event that she's walking to her car from the store, and it, you know, she, they, they do really well trying not to be out at nighttime when it's dark. Uh, all the errands they try to run during the day, because there's always a level of safety that they need to keep an eye on. As women in society, that's very important. You know, A lot of guys don't think about that, um, unless they're in a bad neighborhood. And that's a different story, but just out and about. And a pilot can't have that. Pilot can't have some level of protection. They can't have, uh, you know, pepper spray or mace or something that they can have in their back pocket while they're walking through the streets of New York City and just trying to get to work in uniform.
3: Yeah, with bags and so of course, looking like you got all kinds of cool
0: stuff. Right. It's like, oh, I like your hat. Give me your hat. Excuse me? Yeah, you know, I, I've heard of these things happening. And oh. so as a, as a woman, there's a, that heightened level of, okay, I can't control my schedule. I'm going to have to walk at night. And do I take an Uber, like you said, or do I walk a couple blocks to the bus stop? And then who's going to be at the bus stop? You know? And so, yeah, there's a level, there's a whole level of things to think about in aviation that most guys don't think about most pilots don't think about as male male pilots so it's really interesting and I'm thank you for sharing that because it's really interesting to hear that in that perspective as well so the crash pad itself though I mean it sounds like you had a pretty sweet deal there in LaGuardia
3: it was nice it was clean and yeah like I said good other good people there um so the actual crash pad experience was, was good. And usually there were only out of the six women, there were usually only two of us there at a time, most of the time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. There were, there were signs though that said, do not open the door for anybody posted all over the house.
2: Oh, good. Yeah.
3: Um, I guess people had tried to get in before that weren't.
0: Yeah. Knocking going, oh, I forgot my key. There yeah, right key there. Mm -hmm. yeah because you don't know you have no idea who your roommates are it's not like they're the same people month in month out it's a crash pad so one person might be there one month a week even uh one one person might have been there six years but only used it once every two or three months because they just like to have it as a safety net Mm -hmm. and you may have never seen them before and so yeah there's a there's a a large area of trust and security, you're not just going to go open the door if somebody comes knocking. Uh, because, yeah, and another another thing to think about, if you're a crash pad full of guys and someone comes knocking at the door that shouldn't be there, again, hey, what are you doing? Get out of here. Oh, what's going on? Next you know, you got four pilots coming at you. You know, okay, great. But if you're at a crash pad that's primarily or only women that are at that crash pad, that's another complete subject of security to to talk about and to think about
3: yeah and 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 then i spent my other my other little crash pad experience which was short but tyler and i were both based in richmond and we had lived there for a time but then we were going to be moving back to st louis
2: mm-hmm.
3: and just commuting for a short i don't even remember how long it was a few months so we got a camper and we did the whole <laughs> we did the whole camping in the employee parking lot yeah so so that was fun did you,
0: you still have the camper yeah, or did you sell it yeah. when you didn't need it anymore
3: no we sold it, we sold it years yeah. ago
0: yeah yeah you know you remind me i was flying with the former chief pilot at los angeles international for sandpiper back in 2000 and i want to say 11 or 12 and he he was on the line flying a little bit and i got to fly with him for a trip and he was telling me how back in the day there was a RV park or a campsite that had long-term camping available really close to Los Angeles International Airport, which is no longer there. But he that's what he did. He bought a trailer from another pilot who was selling it and say, I don't need it anymore. You want to buy it? You can use it as a crash pad. You know, it's got, it can sleep four people. It's got a little bathroom in it and a water heater and electricity and it's got all full hookups, you know. Um, And it's great. And so he's like, yeah, I'll buy it. So he, he bought it and, but he noticed that one person would take the shower and it'd be out of hot water. So being the, uh, you know, relatively technical person that he was, he went out and bought a, a 33 gallon metal garbage can. in the old days they had the metal garbage can. And he put a couple cinder blocks in the bottom of it. Then he bought one of those under sink water heaters. It was like a, 15 gallon water heater. It was much bigger than what came equipped in his trailer. And he put that in there and he, and it was an electric water heater and he piped it all so that the heater, the water heater for the camper went through this 15 gallon water heater and they had at least enough water for two or three showers, or at least it would heat up much faster than the little camper water heater. And he's like, yeah, we never ran out of hot water again. And he goes, "And I love that thing and I had it for years. And then finally he ended up selling it. And I thought, man, that's a great idea but the hard part nowadays with the development that's happening is to find an rv park close enough to the airport where you can now with uber who knows you know but but close enough to the airport that it's inexpensive and you can buy a trailer and park it but really cool idea yeah. and thank you for sharing that because you absolutely yeah reminded I, me don't,
3: I don't know that they would allow a camper in the parking lot today but back then
0: yeah i know they've yeah there used to be right. even even a few years ago, there was at one of the remote parking lots at Los Angeles International, employees could park an RV there. They, you couldn't hook up to any of the services. There were no services, but you could park it there. Uh, you paid a little yeah. more monthly than you would for a vehicle, and they got rid of that completely. And now when you fly over the South Complex in Los Angeles on the usual or typical approach to 25 left, you do see that there is a parking lot just north of the Proud Bird restaurant and there are a bunch of RVs and now I guess some automotive manufacturing, uh, transportation, uh, dealers are parking a lot of brand new cars there as storage, but there are trailers there. And I inquired about it just kind of curious. And the, uh, the airport authority indicated that those, that parking lot was closed to employees and is only available now to the construction workers that are working at the Los Angeles international airport. So that's their their trailer lot for for that. Rob, you've got some crash pad stories. Do you not?
1: I do. However, I was reminded um through all Roger and Jerry's story about a um it it, it wasn't my crash pad story, but um it, it it's a good one though. So when I was a check airman at uh Sandpiper, I uh, got this brand new student and uh you know the one of the first things you do as a check airman is hey, I need to see your your medical and your, your certificate and make sure all the numbers look right and everything so they like, he takes out his his wallet and he takes out his uh his his medical certificate and his temporary uh um, ATP certificate and it is completely soaked in water like when he peeled the pages apart the ink was just you know ran over everything you couldn't even read it anymore uh, and i'm like dude you know you just got this like two days ago <laughs> what happened hell did you leave it in your jeans in the dr- washer and the, in the dryer what? yeah and he goes no you know i i honestly i didn't know it was like this until just now but um uh i i, I commute to dallas and instead of buying a uh, or renting a, a a crash pad. I decided to buy a sailboat and use that as a crash pad. Well, I bought the cheapest sailboat I could find. And it, as you know, it rained last night and come to find out the boat has a lot of leaks. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> so, so,
0: oh man.
1: So I was like, wow. Well, wow. that's a new one. <laughs> so... It was a teachable moment, right? So say, like, hey, this. Let's let me teach you now how to get a replacement certificate from the company, and you can still fly if you, you know, you lost it. Right. So it was actually a pretty good moment. So that was a, a, a kind of a funny crash pad moment, I guess, for uh, somebody else. But uh, my particular crash pad story um, takes me back to Chicago uh, around the 2000, I guess, eleven 2012 timeframe. So um um uh, I was a new captain and um let's see I was looking for the cheapest most dollar efficient you know uh place I could find and it just so happened to be the second stop on the blue line a second or the third stop the Cumberland stop on the blue line yeah <laughs> Rogers doing some fist pumps yeah. there so he knows exactly know what it. I'm talking about yep. and Jerry looks like she looks like she knows what I'm talking about but the second stop and, uh, uh, yeah, when I got off the, the, uh, the train and started walking towards the uh, direction of the, uh, crash pad, the area started to resemble it, at least what in my mind I've seen in like movies, uh, the projects, you know, <laughs> you know, shirts are strung from window yeah. to window across the way yeah. and, um, uh, you know, broken down cars with, you know, uh, you know, low riders and I'm like oh my goodness this is mm-hmm. nuts you know but hey this is what somebody recommended I, I do so I, I walked into this place and 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 uh, Jerry my stairs were old wood and crickety too as I walked up into this place except it wasn't like grand with stained glass stained glass it was like you know gunshot holes in the wall and you know, rat traps in the corner. <laughs> uh, oh my god! I'm like, dude. So I get up into the place, and it is just horrible. I mean, first of all, it hasn't been updated since probably the 1970s, maybe the 80s. You know, the floors linoleum, and it's curling up in the corners. And you know, right in front of the uh, stove, there's burn spots on the uh, on the floor from things. You know, probably pans, frying pans falling. He's um, you know, got the old refrigerator. It's like the rounded edges. He's got the big lever you pull. Oh, that's and cool. He opens up and it's all frosted inside. You know, you're like, whoo, this is old, you know, um, and then you walk into the living room and there's just broken furniture everywhere and, you know, stained cushions and I'm like, it'll do. <laughs> 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 so uh, hey for 125 bucks i'm like hey i, I 125 all, I in chicago here, you're like yeah oh 125 God. bucks i'm like hey this can't be that bad you know i'm not going to be here that often i just need to sleep in this bed which was a hot bunk so i kept oh, all my
3: oh, yeah i kept no. my
1: pillow and all my sheets and a in a uh a spare like uh um, um uh, suitcase. Yeah. So whenever whenever I left, I just packed it in the suitcase, put it in the closet, and then, you know, whenever I needed to stay there, it came in and took it out and made my bed. And so that's that's uh, the place that I had. the 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 only saving grace about that place was um, there was an LA Fitness um, workout center right around the corner. Yeah, I know the one. And yeah. so I was a member. So hey, I was there all the time. They had some really good food in the area. Yeah. And, um, for running, they had that deer park, mm-hmm. you know, when you're on final to like, uh, what was it two eight yeah, centers the there? Seven. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You, you, you can go running through the woods there. And it was literally like, uh, you know, maybe 200 yards from the, uh, from the crash pad. So whenever I had to stay there, you know, hopefully it usually was really short. And then if I did have any length of time there, I was either out running or I was at the uh, LA fitness, uh, and stuff like that. But I remember one summer, and I forget which summer it was. It was one of the hottest. The whole country was experiencing a, um, a you know, a heat wave, and Chicago in particular was having a um, a really bad time with it. You know, they were having grids were going out. You know, electrical grids were blacking out in the city and everything like that. And this crash pad, it didn't have any air conditioning except for the window units. Oh. And it had three window units. And for that summer, for some reason, only two of them worked. And I'm sorry, only two, only one of them worked. Two of them are broken. So the two of them that, that, uh, that were down, they actually just blew air. So, I mean, so we just actually turned them on just to circulate the air. Um, But I was like, okay, I'm not going to stay here unless I absolutely have to. And you know I was on reserve like I always am in 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 uh, Chicago and New York so I was like okay I I sh- I'm one of the first ones to get called tomorrow I shouldn't be here that long you know you look on the uh, open time list yeah. for sure I'm going to get called for you know this 4 day trip so it's going to be great to spend the night you know 6 hours max sleep and just you know get called and go on this trip well here I am sleeping. It's like 90 degrees and I'm, I'm in the bed. And I'm just like sweating. And I'm like, Oh, this is horrible. So, you know, I go get some washcloths and soak them in cold water like <laughs> put them on my head, just try to get some relief. And, uh, and then go think, you know, go figure I didn't get the call the next uh, day. So I'm like, Oh my God, this sucks. So I left and went to about like the nearest, like the LA fitness and went in there and worked out and, you know, just, took in some of the air conditioning but oh that whole experience was just miserable yeah um and, and i think the owner was based in florida so he never really checked in on the place and if you sent them a text message or something like that say hey the air conditioner's broke you need to get it fixed, he's like okay yeah, sure i'll fix it i'll get right on you that know, a month a month later you know yeah three air conditioner units show up when you know the temperature drops by 30 or 40 degrees and you don't need it anymore of course
2: <laughs> yeah. so anyway so that, that was
1: that was uh but you know it's something i it kind of had to do i guess i could have upgraded anywhere anywhere along the way but man i was just trying to save pinch every penny that i could and yeah um, hundred. i am cheap and for 120 <laughs> we all are <laughs> for you know for 125 bucks you're know, like sweet i could do i mean i was in the military i lived in dorms the whole time and uh you know we shared common areas and bathrooms and all that stuff and i can relate to what roger said where you know you had to you know if, who's going to clean the bathroom you know you would have to step up and do it yourself if you wanted a clean bathroom uh you know who's going to replace the toilet paper you know like all right, you got to go you toilet paper? get the toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> so i rich. mean that's yeah. <laughs> It it was, it was, uh, that's kind of how it was. Yeah. And, you know, I made, made do with it and, and there was never any more than maybe four guys in that place at any one time. Most of the time I was by myself. Um, and, uh, so it was, you know, as far as, uh, other, you know, I think they actually had as many as eight or 10 people in there, uh, listed to, to stay there at one time. But, uh, like I said, no more than four people at one time were there. Um, so yeah,
0: I had it, a similar kind of experience. And most people with crash pads or that have had to deal with crash pads commuting into a major city, and you know, most people go, "Why don't you just move? Why don't you just you know move to the city where you're based?" It's like, well, yeah, I get, I might get moved two or three times in a year if at the, especially at the beginning or until I get to where I want to be you know, that, that might be the only place that my seniority can hold. And who wants to go live in New York city? How can you afford to live in New York city when you're making it at our time in our day, you know, 20, 22, $25,000 a year, uh, for compensation. And this is, you know, carrying along for most people, student loans or aviation loans or whatnot. So every, every penny counts. It's not that we're cheap per se, although we are, um, because we've, so you just don't that. want to waste money if you don't have you to, You know, we've, sure. we've had to be that way for many years, especially at the beginning of our careers, uh, and it starts from day one when you're a private pilot, because it's very expensive to learn how to fly and to rent an airplane and pay for an instructor and all your books and aviation headsets and all your tools and gadgets and gizmos, and so all that stuff costs money, and so when you're not making that much, especially at the beginning of your aviation careers... You've got to be penny pinchers. Um, I remember I've had four crash pads in my history in aviation thus far. Uh, hopefully, I won't have to have crash pads or commute, but with everything that's going on, it's looking like it might be inevitable if I'm not able to hold Los Angeles. And if I still you know, am working here without an f- interruption of furlough of some kind in the future, I have no idea. Uh, but my first crash pad was... My first month with Sandpiper, my first regional, my first opportunity to work for an airline. My, my first day on the job, I think I, I talked about it in my very first episode, or at least one of those first episodes of Squawk Ident, where you know we had to go around the room and we had to say, hey, where are you all from? Just stand up and, and state your name, and what where are you from? And I was in the back of the room, and you know everybody was standing up and saying there from here, from there, and I stood up. Thank you. My name's Anthony. I'm from California. And the instructor goes, California? I didn't know we still hired people from California. And I mean, the whole class laughed and turned around and looked at me, and I'm like, Why are you picking on me? <laughs> like whatever. So then he was joking around, you know, just trying to break up the monotony. And he's like, Well, well, I guess you're here now. Welcome, you know. And I was like, Holy shit, you know. Um, and so that was kind of like my first experience. And and again, fire hose and all that. And once I was done with all of that, I was based in Chicago, living at the time in Los Angeles. And I had to commute and being on reserve your first month, first month or two, at least some people for years, but I was very fortunate. I had to have a crash pad. And even once I start holding a line, it was a a 6am start. There's no way I'm going to make it to Chicago on a 6am start. So I would come in and I had a friend, a buddy, a couple of us from our new hire class got together. That's why it's so important to network in your initial classes. And one of them goes, well, I'm, I'm a single guy. I'll, everything I own fits in my car. I'm just going to get an apartment. Who's, who wants to split an apartment with me? And so they had a couple of guys, they bought a two and a half bedroom. There was like a den with a door, no closet. And it was like a five foot by 10 foot room. It was very small. And I'm like, well, Hey, I need a crash pad. Instead of getting a crash pad, you want to rent that room to me and I'll furnish it. Cause it was an unfurnished apartment. They were going to live there. And so I went to Ikea, I bought a bed and, you know, a little foot locker and there you go. That's all I needed. And that served me well for at least six months and then i started to hold a line where i didn't have to get a crash pad i could commute in the day of and it was it was great uh, great quality of life uh, not having to deal with riding we had to walk like 5 blocks to the the blue line train in order to catch the train then it was like a 45 minute train ride because they wanted a place closer to downtown so not the best you know place to be walking especially at 4 in the morning people are coming out of the Bars and nightclubs, and I'm in uniform trying to get to work. You um, know, hey, pilot, what are you doing? You know, oh, shit. You know, and I can only imagine being a woman having to do that at four in the morning through a town like Chicago, and these youngsters are coming out of the bars drunk and wanting, oh, you're in uniform, you pilot or a cop? I don't know. Just keep walking. Just keep walking. <laughs> keep your head down. Keep walking. Yeah. Right. So that was a relatively positive experience. Then I upgraded. As Rob, you mentioned, New York was the first opportunity I had. And I was a co domicile between JFK and LaGuardia. And I knew the person, there was one person beneath me on the seniority list as a captain. And he got a crash pad in LaGuardia. And he said, I'm going to bid only LaGuardia airport standby because I know I'm going to get it. I might as well bid it. So he would bid the whole month as airport standby. And he got a crash pad. I probably really close to where you were, Jerry, like not even half a mile from. He would would walk to the... This is how slick he is. He would walk to the airport terminal, go to the operations, sign in on the computer because you couldn't sign in via cell phone back then. He'd sign in on the computer. He'd look at what's open in open time trips. He'd see that there was no open time trips. So he would walk back to the crash pad with his cell phone in his pocket because crew scheduling had to notify you via cell phone and he'd fall back asleep with his phone on him. And then if they called him, he'd go, okay, I'll be right there and be there in 10 minutes. <laughs> but he was sleeping in his bed, Sleep. not airports. Now so that yeah. was a perfect and scenario.
3: Yeah.
0: yeah. For, for me, I knew that I was the number two guy and I knew that he was going to do that. And I was like, fine, if you're going to do that. I'll, I'm, he had the crash pad already set up. I said, I'm going to find a crash pad closer to JFK which are a little harder to come by. So I ended up in Kew Gardens and I ended up in a crash pad. I wanted, I was pretty good. Was it clean and, you know, spacious? No, it was cramped. It was barely furnished. Everything was dirty. There were stains everywhere. The the kitchen was like a third world country kitchen with broken. you, You didn't cook there. You just couldn't. And that was not a bad experience, but then I got back to Chicago and I needed a crash pad. And I didn't really know anyone. A lot of the crash pads were full at the time. I ended up in a penny-pinching crash pad, $125 a night. Probably, it might even have been the same one <laughs> that Rob experienced, because it was the most disgusting thing. I The owner was a, uh, I think he was a Vietnamese man in construction. Had nothing to do with aviation. And he turned this two-bedroom, one-bath apartment with two-by-four furniture and broken everything, no toilet paper, nothing. You had to bring your own everything, bring your own sheets and everything. It was not a hot bunk, but the mattresses still had the plastic on them. And when he's, when I'm like, well, I'm going to take the plastic. He goes, no, no, don't take the plastic off the mattress. I will charge you for the mattress. The plastic stays on the mattress. Why? It's going to get really hot. It's uncomfortable. Every time I move, you're going to hear plastic. This is not acceptable. He's like, well, I don't want bed bugs. The plastic stays on the mattress. Okay. So, you know, you wrap the mattress with as many blankets underneath your sheets as possible, but it was a sweat fest, okay? And it was... Oh, man. It was supposed to be not co-ed, but it was co-ed. And so the bedrooms, one of them had two bunk beds in them, that's the room I got to be in. The other, bunk, the other bedroom had four bunk beds in it. So, <laughs> do the math, when everybody was there, there was no room to stand up. And the bathroom being the smallest thing you can imagine with no supplies whatsoever, no cleaning supplies. no nothing. I mean, you really dreaded going in there to, to rinse off before you had <laughs> to go to work because you know, first you had to be quick because you had somebody pounding on the door. And second, you had to everything and take the toilet paper with you. Cause if you don't have your own, so I'd, I'd have a little foot locker in the end of the bed and I stashed a bunch in there, but if you didn't lock it, when you came back from your trip and you had to use the crash pad and then you go to grab a roll of toilet paper and it was gone, somebody took it. So nightmare, absolute nightmare. So a friend of mine said to me, Hey, uh, I'm starting my own crash pad. I I, I won't, I'm not going to put up with this shit. I've heard your stories. I, I, he was in a different one, similar situation. So he says, I'm going to rent a place. I'm going to sign a lease for a year. Uh, The owner's well aware I'm a pilot. And I told him I'm going to, Put in some bunk beds and I'm going to make a crash pad out of it and they're okay with it. And so that's what he did. And he says, Hey, why don't you come in and help me manage it? I'll give you, you know, a really good rate. And you and you help me with the tenants when I'm not there, you're there and help me fix it up because it needs paint, you know? And so he completely decked it out, put in nice, big, brand new TV. We, uh, I did the work cause I was on reserve and not getting called. So it's not like I could just go home for the night. So I was there and I was painting and, you know, Putting up you know aviation art and frames and stuff and and nothing too expensive all on a budget, but we had a backyard he bought a vehicle there was a car in the garage that he and I could use to you know run to the grocery store and take tenants to the grocery store once or twice a week whenever we were there uh hey, grocery run later today if anyone wants to go that was the nicest crash pad I think I've ever been in um it was just as nice as my own home and and it was really a pleasure and across the street from a park it was Three exits on the blue line there in Harlem exit, and my friend still runs it to this day, uh, even though he's rarely there uh, but and if you see the pictures, it's got its own Facebook page and everything. It's a beautiful, beautiful crash pad and a huge vetting process to get in. I think we talked about that in the last show uh, or a couple of shows ago about getting into there. Uh, but it is a, a absolutely night and day experience between what most of us go through when we deal with crash pads and what's out there. And he's not alone. I know of quite a few people in the Chicago area that run crash pads and they're just as nice. Uh, One even has a gaming room in in the basement with Xbox and PlayStation and all that stuff for pilots, you know, to use. So uh, do your research. Um, They're kind of not necessarily something that the city wants a tenant to have because it deals with occupancy issues. Uh, But like we've all mentioned, it was an extremely rare occurrence when more than two or three people were there at any given time. So, you know, and you're just your roommates and that's what you have to deal with. Well, that wraps up the show episode 40. Can you believe it guys? 40 episodes in and hopefully we can keep this thing going for a long time ahead that's awesome tony
1: congratulations man that's 40 episodes that's like so that's like getting your private pilot's license
0: right there 40 hours 40 in hours we've graduated hours. Yep. the podcast private Woohoo! podcast license ppl <laughs> that's it man congrats <laughs> well thank you uh all of you it's been a pleasure having this opportunity especially now while we are in this uh, isolation mode hopefully i don't know what is it in Indiana? Did, did they talk about when they're going to lift the isolation ban?
3: No, I, I don't know what, no, what's next. And what about, Indiana? what about
1: Texas? What'd they tell Texas you? Texas is free, man. We opened up today. Uh, we're actually going to go to a restaurant and uh, I mean, there's a lot, still a lot of restrictions, but you um, can sit down the, at uh, a
0: table and have a meal with a fork you, and a knife.
1: Yeah. I was just actually looking at that earlier, but, um, Basically, you can go to a restaurant and um, 25% occupancy. So it's not going to be full. I mean, it's going to be full because it's going to be 25%. Make
0: a reservation, <laughs> my friend. Make a reservation. Make reservations, Yeah, because yep. so there's going to be floodgates, man.
1: Believe it or not, D, the movie theaters are open. the economy. I like it. Man, I've been going to restaurants I, anyways. I've just been doing a lot of takeout. Yeah. So yeah. trying to support all the local guys and stuff. So I, I hate to cook. I mean, I, I could do the basic stuff, but, uh um, I'd rather <laughs> just call and go pick it up or whatever, or have it delivered. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. And Roger and I, we have till May 15th, at least at this point, uh, yeah. for the, uh, at least the rollout of the, uh, reduced, it's going to be a reduced, um, opening. I don't think they're going to open everything up, um, no. at once. They're going to do just like restaurants and, uh, some non-essential establishments. But, you know, it's important that we get out and, you know, we socialize. And this has been a great opportunity. It's a substitute to the real thing. And I can't wait until we have the opportunity for a meetup. Whereas maybe we all can get together and meet up somewhere and have a remote studio. I happen to have... A 15 foot canned ham vintage trailer sitting in the side of my yard that we've recently purchased just last year with intention to remodel it. And once it's remodeled, I uh, it will have a portable aviator studios, sound studios, uh, inside and maybe an air show near you in the near future, I'm thinking maybe Chino might be in order for a wonderful time to record a live show from an airport uh, once all this COVID thing kind of starts to settle down. So I look forward to having that opportunity uh, with all of you and with the listeners. So stay tuned. There's a lot coming up in the year 2020 and the years ahead. And I hope to share them with all of you. So, uh, You guys, thank you, Rob, Roger, Jerry. Thank you so much for being a part of episode 40. I had a wonderful time. Thanks, Tony.
3: Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks, Tony. I
2: appreciate it. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes episode 40 of Squawk Ident. I hope you enjoyed the show. It did run a little longer than we wanted to, but we had so much to talk about and we really enjoyed sharing it with you. I wanna take a moment to thank the frontline workers, the doctors, nurses, pharmacists, EMTs, medical techs, firefighters, law enforcement, grocery store employees, truck drivers, Amazon workers, and of course, all of the airline employees out there that show up to work every day to provide essential service. I'm starting to see a little bit more traffic at the airport and this might just signal the beginning of the return of air travel in the United States. I want to also say thank you for listening to Squawk Ident. Please visit our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There you can check out episode cover art, episode archives, photos from the flight line, the pilot shop, and cool Squawk Ident gear. And you can leave us comments and audio feedback as well. If you're on the social media accounts, Facebook and Instagram users can search Squawk Ident, Podcast. And Twitter users and YouTube users now can also search for Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. Check it out. Check out the YouTube page. We're putting up little promo videos there of the Squawk Ident podcast from the recordings. And we do hope that you enjoy them. Finally, if you're listening on Apple podcast, it would really help us out. If you could just take a moment to make sure that you subscribe, listen to the show and leave some feedback or write a review. That really does help us with the standings with Apple Podcasts. And one final thank you to Rob D., Roger, and Jerry for bearing with me and recording over three hours worth of footage that, thankfully, I was able to edit down quite a bit. We thought about cutting this episode up into two parts, but we figured you could always pause and come back and listen to it later, and since we were on a roll, we just kept going with it. So please do reach out tell us what you think. We do appreciate it. And finally, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other.